everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done, too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. The oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. This is what H.P. Lovecraft wrote in his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, first published in 1927. And if there's one thing H.P. Lovecraft knew about, it was fear. The man lived in fear, afraid of his neighbors, afraid of the world changing around him, afraid of losing his sanity, maybe even afraid of the mysterious monsters he wrote about. He sure knew how to write about monsters that scared others. He knew how to create monsters that were so terrifying they'd become the basis for monsters in film and TV nearly a century after he wrote about them. He knew how to blend details about the normal world we know with the details of a fictional world just beyond our comprehension that he made seem all too real. He knew how to make us doubt our perception of reality and our ability to use words to describe things. H.P. Lovecraft was a master at mysterious, deeply unsettling horror. All of his fictional works would orbit one vital premise. We are all doomed if whatever is out there in space discovers us. Or as Lovecraft said, all of my tales are based on the fundamental premise that common human laws and emotions have no validity or significance in the cosmos at large. Fun. And one of those things out there in the cosmos at large would be the mythic monster Cthulhu. In his short story, The Call of Cthulhu, he described it as a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings behind. A frightening creature. Not only scary because it's massive and destructive, but also because seeing it basically ensures that you'll go insane, get killed by Cthulhu's worshippers, or worse. We'll learn about Cthulhu today and some of Lovecraft's other gods and strange intergalactic creatures and the influence they'd have on the imaginations of later creators. Stephen King has said the best of Lovecraft's works are uniquely terrible in all of American literature and survive with all their power intact. Lovecraft paved the way for people like Stephen King and Neil Gaiman. We have Lovecraft to thank in part for so much. Stranger Things, The Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, The X-Files, so much more, all influenced in some way by Lovecraft's cosmic horror. 
Odds are you are familiar with and possibly deeply love the work of someone Lovecraft influenced. But do you really know anything about H.P. Lovecraft? Who is he? Let's find out on this week's Eldridge Tentacle Monster Cosmic Terror Weird Tales edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sack. Welcome to a strange and terrible weird, weird tales edition of Time Suck. I'm Dan Cummins, horror lover, Cthulhu tamer, weird tales tour guide, the master sucker, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, get in that cosplay outfit, Lucifina. Praise Bojangles and save us from an unimaginable fate, Triple M. Whole bunch of strange, we've been zucked, real boy Tiago, shut down our original Facebook call to the Curious Group merch in the store right now. Speaking of weird at badmagicmerch.com. We have some especially weird merch this week. We have a Tiago Facebook AI robot tee uh, in the store. We have a whole cool Time Zucked collection with tees, tank tops, and phone cases, different designs. Tiago, if you missed me talking about Tiago or don't remember, uh, Tiago is the AI bot who sent me weekly updates for a few months about our private Facebook Cult of the Curious group. Uh, week after week, I got this message letting me know that our ti- uh, uh, suspended group might come back. Hi, Dan. I hope to find you well. Please allow me to update you and let you know that we haven't forgotten about your group's review request, as it is still under review by the relevant team. Nevertheless, please allow me to mention that we have chased this matter and will inform you once we can provide more details. Thank you for your patience and wishing you a lovely day. Kind regards, Tiago, Facebook Group's Admin Support Analyst. I actually thought Tiago was real for the longest time. I'm an idiot. I would reply. I would never get a message back. Then my very last message from Tiago said, Hi, Dan. I would like to follow up with you as we've now heard back from the relevant team. No one talks like that. And this time we have new details to share with you. Thanks for your patience. Please allow me to inform you that after reviewing the Cult of the Curious group, we can confirm that the group has been taken down. It will not be restored as the group violations applied to it were deemed to be accurate. As such, it is not possible to further appeal and our team is unfortunately unable to further assist in this regard. I know this can be disappointed news and that this wasn't the outcome you were looking for. But please do keep in mind that we are unable to submit another appeal as the decision is final. Thank you once again for contacting Facebook group support. Should you have any new questions or concerns, I'd kindly ask that you please create a new support request by clicking on the group support in the support section. Although we cannot restore your group, your feedback will allow us to continue to improve for the future. And I would invite you to answer a short survey that you'll receive. Kind regards, Chow. I didn't take that fucking survey. Uh, finally, I was like, this, there's no way this person is real. The tone's all over the place. The verbiage is so weird. Please, please do keep in mind that we won't do fuck all to help you. Thanks for your patience. Now beat it. We don't want your filthy business. Please give some feedback. Uh, thanks, Tiago, you real boy. So now, of course, we have Cult of the Curious 2, at least as I write this, and so many cool subgroups where Meat Sacks have downloaded the free subgroup social pack and made their own cool little communities. Unofficial Cult of the Curious groups, uh, groups like Cult of the Curious investors groups for Meat Sack investors and stock traders. Uh, Lucifina's Galleria, a Cult of the Curious art subgroup. Love seeing so many people find friends with similar interests. So hail Nimrod, hail all of you making those groups. And uh, and that announcement took longer than I thought it was going to as far as announcements. So fuck all the other announcements. Let's just get off to the topic. Uh, a topic unlike what we normally do. Comparable episodes to today's would be uh, the Edgar Allan Poe episode from June 2019. Maybe Dante's Inferno from February back in this year. But this is still pretty different than even those episodes, which is fitting because Lovecraft was, uh, well... He's a different kind of dude. 
Also, this episode is different because it's less about Lovecraft the man, although we will dig into his life for sure, and more about his most famous monster, the subgenre of literature he essentially created, and the influence he's had on you know much of the fantasy, sci-fi, and horror fiction we enjoy today. Uh, this week, we're exploring how H.P. Lovecraft and you know one of the most fascinating worlds in the history of creative world building uh, was built. Let's call upon the great and terrible Cthulhu. Rise up from the ocean depths and face us, great, mysterious, monstrous god. We accept any madness that comes from your awakening. Who was Lovecraft? Who published his early works so that we now know of him? That's where we're starting today. Got to talk about Weird Tales, a pulp sci-fi and horror magazine that was Lovecraft's main employer. A magazine very influential to a lot of you know modern shows that I love, like The X-Files. Uh, I would argue BBC's Black Mirror. Holy shit, I love that show. Smart scares. Uh, Weird Tales was a magazine very influential to The Twilight Zone, which in turn for sure influenced Black Mirror. Um, then next, I'll lay out what defines Lovecraft's brand of cosmic horror. Cosmic horror, also known as Lovecraftian horror, type of fantasy sci-fi horror, uh, common now that Lovecraft pioneered. And you might be more familiar with that subgenre than you think. You ever watch Stranger Things? Lindsay, the kids and I love that show. That show is so influenced by Lovecraft. I, I would play Stranger Things firmly in the world of cosmic horror. Uh, Matt Duffer, one of the Duffer brothers who created Stranger Things, said they took an H.P. Lovecraft sort of approach to the series when creating the monsters that inhabit the Upside Down. He said this interdimensional being that is sort of beyond human comprehension. We purposely don't want to go too much into what it is or what it wants. That is a very Lovecraftian, like textbook approach, as you shall soon see. Uh, the Demigorgon, so Lovecraft. The imagination of Lovecraft is all around us. Going over the tenets of what defines Lovecrafting or cosmic horror, we'll discuss some 20th century world building and world builders that set forth the kind of immersive fiction that now dominates film, television, gaming, and more. Lovecraft's place amongst epic world builders like J.R.R. Tolkien, George Lucas. We'll talk about that. We'll jump into a timeline then of Lovecraft, the man's life, before hopping out to dissect his dissect, excuse me, his most influential work, the beginning of his now famous Cthulhu mythos, mythos. The Call of Cthulhu. Next, we'll meet some of the gods and monsters from that mythos before looking at his second most famous work at the Mountains of Madness. So much madness today. And before we recap, we will look at some Lovecraft controversies I'm sure many of you are very, very familiar with. Uh, he was very, very, you know, early 20th century in some of the worst ways. He was a weird and troubled dude. I uh, hope you find all this as interesting as I do, and I hope it fires up your imagination like it does mine. Man, he is, Lovecraft is imagination fuel. Uh, hail Nimrod, protect this great god of time suck from the horrors that await. Um, all right. H.P. Lovecraft, Howard Phillips Lovecraft, born in Providence, Rhode Island on August 20th, 1890. He became the author of fantastic and macabre short novels and shorter stories that would bring him a lot of, uh, a lot more fame and death than it ever did in life. Since his death at the age of just 46 back in 1937, he's become regarded as one of the 20th century masters of the gothic tale of terror, seen by many as the American successor to fellow New Englander, uh, Edgar Allan Poe, who died a little over 40 years before his birth. Lovecraft, a science fiction author, was more interested in science and fiction as a young child, but lifelong health issues, a combination of both physical and mental health issues, it seems, prevented him from attending college and pursuing a more uh, traditional career. He made his living. Well, he never really made a living. Uh, he made some money, uh, primarily as a ghostwriter and rewrite man. Despite being born into affluence, he ended up spending half his childhood and most of his adulthood in seclusion and, and poverty. Definitely was one of those tortured genius types. Not a fun fate, poor bastard. So many fans today, so few in his lifetime. 
What a terrible thing to become so successful as an artist, but never live to see that success. From 1923 on, when he was able to get published, most of Lovecraft's stories would be published in the fantastic old magazine, Weird Tales. It was so fun to explore Weird Tales for this episode. The first issue of Weird Tales was published in March of 1923. Lovecraft would get one of his short stories, Dagon, uh, published in the October 1923 edition, issue number eight. His first Weird Tales publication was also the first of Lovecraft's stories to introduce uh, the Cthulhu, uh, uh, a Cthulhu mythos element. I never want to say mythos, mythos. Mythos sounds better in my mind, but uh, the internet says mythos. Uh, the, he introduced the seed deity Dagon, also the name of an ancient god of the Phoenicians and the Philistines associated with agriculture. And Weird Tales love their covers. Maybe spent haha, a bit too much time checking out their covers this week. Basically, it's a mashup of pinup models, which I fucking love, and monsters, which I also love. Hey, Lucifina. Uh, the kind of shit I was doodling when I was in grade school and junior high, though not nearly as well as their illustrators. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've talked about Weird Tales somewhere before on Time Suck. I just can't figure out where. I thought I brought it up in maybe Mothman or Men in Black, but can't find it in the notes. Oh, well. Uh, Weird Tales is technically still around, but it hasn't existed in wide circulation since the original magazine uh, folded in 1940, or 1954. There were some reprint anthologies in the 60s, four new magazine issues in the 70s, four original paperbacks in the 80s, and the publication picked up uh, a little bit for the next few decades with semi-regular monthly issues. A collection of new tales. Issue 364 was uh, just published in December of 2020. It's an American fantasy and horror fiction pulp magazine. And it was never extremely popular, uh, but it was most popular during the mid-1930s when Lovecraft was a steady contributor, revered by many horror and fantasy fans today. When it came out, it was so unique. There was just nothing like it. It had cult classic written all over it from the very outset. Initially, it was just the, it was the only monthly magazine in the U.S. publishing uh, science fiction stories. Yeah, when it first came out, it was the only one. So if that was the kind of shit you were into, you fucking loved Weird Tales. Oh my heck, you fucking flipping did. It was the only place you'd get your fill of new strange science fiction short stories every month. I picture a couple of 12-year-old boys in 1923 racing their bikes down to the local Five and Dime that carries a few comic books and pulp magazines like this, running into the store, grabbing the new copy of Weird Tales the day it comes out, seeing story titles on the cover like The Phantom Wolfhound, The Moon Terror Part 2, The Grey Death and The Blade of Vengeance. Those are all real titles from the fourth issue of Weird Tales in 1923. Picture those kids being pumped. Whoa, ain't this the bee's knees, Marty? Look at this broad caught in that tentacle. Doesn't she look just like Gloria Swanson? Well, I think she's just a cat's pajamas. What a Sheba. Look at all these monsters. Who thinks of this stuff? All this for less than two bits? Man, I love Weird Tales. Let's dust out. Seriously, I bet so many kids love this magazine. Some of them would later become sci-fi authors themselves. You know, Weird Tales was, was imagination fuel, like I said, in, in cheap paper form. What a beautiful thing to nourish creativity. Thank Nimrod for publications like Weird Tales. Uh, I never traveled much at all growing up, other than camping trips to places where, you know, we could drive to in a few hours, shopping for clothes in a few hours drive. Uh, I went on just one traditional va vacation before graduating high school, went to Disneyland. Other than that, stayed where we lived. Physically, uh, stayed where we lived. But in my mind, I went all over the place Thanks to my imagination, and my imagination was fueled by strange stories like those published originally in Weird Tales. So, uh, you know, for a weird dude who used to be a weird kid, thank you, Weird Tales. Even though I didn't read your stories, I did read many stories written by authors clearly influenced heavily by your stories, and I loved them. Uh, the magazine, again, yeah, peaked in the 1930s, built itself as the number one magazine of strange and unusual stories. 
Uh, there were other, many other pulp magazines. Amazing Stories came out a few years after Weird Tales in 1926. Would also feature odd science fiction tales. That old pulp magazine still around, uh, also just barely. Uh, we first talked about Amazing Stories and uh, uh, in, in early 20th century American pulp magazines here on Time Suck, uh, actually in the Scientology episode back in March of 2017. If you remember, if you heard that one, L. Ron Hubbard, the fucking beady-eyed Weasley con artist, founder of Scientology, worked for years as a pulp fiction author, cranking out story after story for magazines like Unknown. Now, that came out in 1938 uh, before um, giving up on Westerns, detective stories, sci-fi, war stories, tales of exotic adventure, romance, and uh, realizing there was more money in writing a new religion. And no JK there. Man, Elrond's pivot from pulp fiction writer to religious founder is the most blatant, I am clearly full of shit, uh, founding of a religion in history, thanks to all the documentation about exactly how he did it. Oh, Scientology. So sad that you exist. Uh, anyway, pulp magazines, often referred to as the pulps, were inexpensive fiction magazines published from 1896 to the late 1950s. Uh, they, they were precursors to a lot of the sci-fi comic books and graphic novels that would come out later. Um, pulp magazines were the successor to 19th century dime novels, popular fiction issued in a, in a series of inexpensive paper-bound editions. American dime novels tended to feature crime noir, detective tales, over-the-top stories of Wild West heroism, train robbers and fights between cowboys and tribes. There are also romance and war stories. A lot of like the old, like, John Wayne movies, you know, like, uh, that, that they came out of that, uh, um, you know, the type of story that was originally published in these, like, Western pulp magazines. And uh, all of that crime noir that a lot of us love now started off in America in these, in these magazines. And uh, their stories were considered cheap, lowbrow, and quickly cranked out. In England, these stories were known as penny dreadfuls. In Victorian England, with their penchant for ghost tales, gothic horror tales became popular in these penny dreadfuls by the end of the 19th century. Uh, Lovecraft, a huge fan of those uh, British horror tales and those penny dreadfuls. Publishers geared these books towards the uneducated lower class, producing stories with simple formulaic plots that opened new worlds to the readers. Storylines were straightforward and told in physical language that brought up uh, brought to mind concrete pictures and people for the readers. Sounds like they're being a, a bit insulting with this description, like these were stories for dumb people, and I bet I would have loved them. Uh, easy on the symbolism and metaphors. Kick up the action, motherfuckers. I'm here to be entertained, not enriched. Showbiz. Uh, stories were shorter than most novels, brightly illustrated, basically a kind of yeah precursor, like I said, to graphic novels. Okay, so back to weird tales now. Uh, weird tales focus not on romance or true crime, not on westerns, but primarily horror, and specifically strange horror. Weird shit, as the name implies. Tales of odd monsters from other worlds, tales of ghosts and dread, tales of madness. One of uh, Weird Tales' young fans was Rod Sterling, born in 1924. He enjoyed the heyday of Weird Tales when he was a young teen and preteen in the 30s, undoubtedly read a lot of Lovecraft. And if you don't recognize the name, Rod Sterling will fuck you! Get out of here! I'm sick of it! Turn it off! I'm sick of you not liking exactly what I like! JK. Of course, JK. Uh, but I do love Rod Sterling. Huge influence on my imagination and the imaginations of so many other fellow weirdos. Rod Sterling would create and then host the original Twilight Zone series that began in 1959. Twilight Zone, very influenced by the kinds of stories found in weird tales. And then, as I said earlier, the Twilight Zone would later influence another show I love, you know, Black Mirror. Uh, Weird Tales influences Rod Sterling, who creates the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone also uh, Twilight Zone then influences Chris Carter, who then creates the X-Files. Uh, Lovecraft, you know, major Weird Tales presence for all of that. 
Before really refocusing on Lovecraft, let me read you one of the short stories published in Weird Tales by someone else a few months before Lovecraft's first story would be published in the magazine, just to get a taste of the world of Weird Tales, uh, the world that Lovecraft was such a part of. Get a, get a feel for, you know, his weird literary peers and competition. This comes from issue number three, May 1923, later selected in 1997 as one of the best stories of 1923's Weird Tales. The Purple Heart by Herman Sisk. I was weary of the fog that hung over me like a pall, fatigued to the point of exhaustion. Since early afternoon, the chill wind had forced it through my clothing like rain. It depressed me. The country through which I had traveled alone was desolate and unpeopled, save here and there, where some bush assumed fantastic form. The very air was oppressive. As far as I could see were hills, nothing but hills in those bushes. Occasionally, I could hear the uncanny cry of some hidden animal. As I pushed on, a dread of impending disaster fastened itself upon me. I thought of my home, of my mother and sister, and wondered if all was well with them. I tried to rid myself of this morbid state of mind, but try as I would, I could not. It grew as I progressed until as length it became a part of me. I had walked some fifteen miles, and was so weary I could scarcely stand, when I came suddenly upon a log cabin. It was a crude affair, quite small, and stood back some distance from the little used road in a clump of trees. A tiny window and a door faced the direction from which I approached. No paint had ever covered the roughly hewn logs from which it was made, and the sun and the wind and the fog had turned the virgin wood to a drab brown. I felt it was useless to knock, for the cabin had every appearance of being deserted. However, rap I did. No voice bade me enter, and with an effort I pushed open the door and staggered into the house. Almost immediately my weary legs crumbled under me, and I toppled and struck heavily on my face. When I regained consciousness, a rough room, scantily furnished, greeted my eye. There was an ill-looking table, the top of which was warped and rectangular in shape, standing in the center. To one side was a rustic chair. Beyond the table was a bunk built into the wall, and on this lay a man with shining eyes and a long white beard. A heavy gray blanket covered all of him but his head. Showbiz, he said. You're just in time for some peanut butter. Now take off your pants and show me that fat bare bottom. I got the cat nine tails already warmed up. No, that's not what happened next. That was serial killer Albert Fish popping in for no reason. Apologies. Here's what really happened next in the story. They're right on time, he said in a high-pitched voice. I looked at him closely. I don't know you, I said. Nor are you, but I know you would come. You are ill and need help, I asked. No, he replied in his strange monotone. But on this day, someone always visits here. No one has ever returned, but I have yet to be alone on the night of this anniversary. There was something so weird in the way he looked at me out of those big watery eyes, I involuntarily shuddered. What anniversary, I asked. The murder of my father, he answered. It happened many years ago. A strange man came to this cabin just as you've done. He paused. And then he said, Whee! I'm Woody! I need any paranormal rape repellent? Might as well try and sell something while we wait for Charles to get back with you. <laughs> he has moonshine contact somewhere around here. Sorry. God damn it. That's sure where the strange puppet has appeared in my mind. Woody is not a part of Herman's original weird tale. Back to 1923. I said nothing. Who wished to stay all night? He asked. Yes, I may, I replied. A moment later, I regretted it. Quite so, said he, with a slight nod of his white head. Those were the very words he addressed to us. We took him in. When morning came, I found my father dead in there. 
rolling his eyes and raising his head to indicate some point behind him. With a dagger in his heart. You can see the room if you open the door behind me. I looked at him a moment, hesitating. But I went to the door and pushed it open, cautiously glancing into the other room. I saw there was nothing there but a bunk similar to the one the old man occupied. Don't be afraid, he said, evidently sensing my fear. Nothing will hurt you now. It's after midnight when it happens. What happens, I asked. I don't know. No two men have had the same experience. It all depends on one's state of mind. You mean, I began. Yes, he interrupted. One man saw hands reaching towards him and ropes in the air. He was escaping the gallows. Another saw faces of beautiful girls. He was on his way to a large church wedding. A third saw pools of blood in the white snow stained by human life. He was again living through a massacre in Russia. Do you live here? No, no one does. The cabin is quite deserted. I come each year to welcome the evening's guest. Is there no other place to stay? I asked, a sudden fear seizing me. None. Besides, it is growing dark without, and you would lose your way even if you could leave. There was something ominous in the way he uttered these last five words. Yes, he went on, as if I had asked the un unuttered question in my mind. You may think you can go, but you cannot. That is the curse my father placed on this cabin. And I come here each year to see that his word is obeyed. Whoever enters that door yonder on this date must stay until morning and endure the agonies that only the rising sun can dispel. I looked about me to make sure that he and I were the only living things in the room. What is to prevent my leaving? I asked. Try to, he replied, an eerie note of glee in his queer voice. I walked to the door and gave it a mighty pull and to my utter amazement, it was locked. I tried again, this time with greater determination, but the door remained unyielding. A sudden terror seized me. I turned to beseech the old man to let me go, but he was not there. I looked quickly about me. He was nowhere to be seen. I ran into the other room. And then, what is big deal? I turned around to see a strange Ukrainian stroking his flaccid chain penis in the corner beneath his sweatpants. About the no one. I jerk for a bit, then leave you back to ghost story. Sorry, got me again. 20th century serial killer Andre Chikatilo is not part of this tale. No more inside joke interruptions, I swear. It was as empty as before I rushed to the door there and pulled vigorously, but my efforts were in vain. Returning to his bunk, I examined it closely. To my great astonishment, the heavy gray blanket was gone. In desperation, I tried once more the door through which I'd entered the cabin. It was still as inflexible as concrete. Doctors fell fast and the room became very dim. I groped about and discovered some matches and a candle on a shelf under the table. I struck a match and lighted the candle, letting some of the tallow drip onto the table. I made a stick for it. I then sat down on the edge of the bunk and anxiously awaited developments. But nothing occurred to mar the somber silence of my prison. Thus I remained until my watch pointed to the hour of nine. My journey had greatly fatigued me, but my fears counterbalanced my weariness, so that I kept in wake in spite of it. At length, however, my eyelids grew heavy, my eyes became bleary, so that the candle multiplied and my head drooped until my chin rested on my chest. Letting the candle burn, I lay back on the hard bunk. I was cold and very nervous, and greatly felt the need of food and dry clothing. But my fatigue soon overcame me and I fell asleep. When I awakened, a sense of suffocation and bewilderment hung over me. Whereas the room had been cold when I lay down, it now seemed close and hot. I pulled myself to a sitting posture. The room was dark. The candle was out. I jumped to my feet and started toward the table. But in another moment, I stood frozen to the spot, my eyes arrested and my body palsied by what I saw before me. At the far end of the room was a purple glow in the shape of a human heart. It was stationary when I saw it but almost immediately began to move about the room. Now it was at the window, then beside the table. Again it moved quickly, but silently into the other room. 
I pulled my frightened senses together and groped my way to the table. I found a match. With trembling hands, I struck it and lit the candle. To my surprise, it was almost as tall as when I had fallen asleep. I looked at my watch. It was one o'clock. A moment later, the flame was snuffed out, and I was again in total darkness. I looked wildly about me. Horrors! The purple heart was beside me! I shrank back in terror. It came closer. Suddenly, I acquired superhuman courage. I grasped for the specter. I touched nothing. I placed my left hand before me at arm's length. Lo! It was between me and my hand! Presently, it moved away. A great calm settled over me, and I began to sense a presence in the room. Now, without any fear and with a steady hand, I again struck a match and lighted the candle. It was promptly extinguished. I struck another with similar results. And now something brushed my lips, and an arm was passed lightly about my shoulders. But I was no longer afraid. The room continued cozily warm, and a greater sense of peace came over me. Presently, I lay down again and watched the purple heart as it came toward me and took its place at the edge of the bunk like some loved one sitting beside me. I must have fallen asleep again, for I knew no more until broad daylight awakened me and I found myself lying in the middle of the room. There was no fog, the sun was shining brightly, and a broad beam was streaming through the dusty window pane. The candle and the match were no longer visible. Suddenly, I thought of the locked door. Springing to it, I gave a mighty pull. It opened easily! I snatched my cap from the rough floor and hurried into the warm sunlight. A short distance from me, a man came trudging along. He was a powerful-looking fellow of middle age and was dressed in coarse, working clothes. Do you know anything about that cabin? I shouted as we drew closer. Sure, it's haunted, he replied. He looked hard at me. Were you in there last night? I related my experience. That's queer, he muttered. But I ain't surprised. Last night was the night. What night? I demanded. Ten years ago, an old man was murdered in that cabin, and his son swore on his deathbed he'd come back every anniversary and lure somebody into the cabin for the night and torture him. He shuddered, his white face staring at the cabin. Come away, he whispered. Come away. It's haunted. It's haunted. So, uh, so yeah, that was a fucking weird tale. Uh, a little weirder, you know, with my bullshit thrown in, uh, but still plenty weird on its own. That was something that scared people back in 1923. Uh, that's the kind of story Lovecraft was competing with. And the kind of story, you know, that would uh, influence later horror, fantasy, and sci-fi writers. I gotta say, I, I like the tone of the story, but, uh, Glowing purple heart? Was that, was that scary? I think a hand would have been better, right? Like a glowing purple hand. A, a glowing purple head. Maybe a glowing purple head with no eyes. You know, no mouth or something fucked up. Maybe a, maybe a glowing purple spider with a human head that, that crawled into, fucking lifted his eyelids and crawled into his fucking brain like a Roanoke recluse. I don't know. Maybe those, maybe those weren't weird enough for weird tales. Lovecraft would, maybe they're too weird. Uh, Lovecraft would write a lot of stories that ended up in weird tales. Yeah, like I said, uh, I counted 25, I think more than any other single author, uh, as far as for the period he was alive. The Call of Cthulhu would first be published in the February 1928 issue. The Horror at Red Hook, first published in the January 1927 issue. The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, these are all some of his more famous stories. A short novel written in 1927 would be published after Lovecraft died uh, across the May through July 1941 issues. Not for weird tales, who published him by far, uh, you know, published him uh, more by far than any other monthly pulp publication, we probably would not know of Lovecraft today. Uh, in death, thanks to this exposure that helped him introduce, uh, get introduced to other writers and critics, Lovecraft ended up being recognized as being so good at telling his own brand of weird tales that critics basically named a whole genre of horror after him called Lovecraftian horror, aka cosmic horror, a genre of horror slash weird fiction that emphasizes the terror of the unknowable and incomprehensible more than gore or shock. It's the kind of horror that tries to shake you to your core existentially. No jump scares, 
Not a bunch of gruesome dismembering. Uh, the core themes and atmosphere of cosmic horror were laid out by Lovecraft himself in his essay, uh, Supernatural Horror in Literature. A number of characteristics have been identified as being associated with Lovecraftian horror. Here are what seem to be the seven most important. One, fear of the unknown and unknowable. All right. Two, uh, the fear and awe we feel when confronted by phenomena beyond our comprehension whose scope extends beyond the narrow field of human affairs and boasts of cosmic significance. Here, horror derives from the realization that human interests, desires, laws, morality, they don't mean shit. They have no meaning or significance in the universe at large. Consequently, it's been noted that these that the entities in Lovecraft's books were not evil because they, they lay outside human conceptions of morality. So interesting horror concept here. You know, what if you were being threatened, about to be gruesomely tortured, likely killed by an entity that didn't see what it was doing to you or about to do to you as morally wrong? Your life and hopes and dreams, they don't mean anything more to it than a, than a gnat or a housefly's life mean to you, right? Your life is just viewed as totally meaningless. If this viewpoint is fixed, then no amount of begging for your life, no amount of reasoning will spare you from any horror coming your way. That's why fictional monsters can often be seem uh, scarier to a lot of people than real life ones. With some serial killer, for example, you can at least, you know, entertain the possibility that maybe you might get released alive. You know, it's happened here and there, like with uh, the truck stop killer, night soccer, Richard Ramirez. Every once in a while, those fucking psychos will release somebody or, or you know, someone would escape their clutches. Uh, you know, they're monsters you can at least speak to, you can talk the same language as, uh, try and reason with them. But not with certain, you know, monsters, like a Lovecraftian monsters. If they get a hold of you, you're, you're probably just going to die. Your destruction's, uh, you know, almost inevitable. Lovecraft continues in his description. Three, uh, contemplation of mankind's place in the vast, comfortless universe revealed by modern science in which the horror springs from the discovery of appalling truth. Reminds me of the call of Cthulhu. The narrator discovers that numerous men have died, not at the hands or rather claws and tentacles of Cthulhu, but rather at the realization that the fate of humanity is tied to a monster. That when the stars are aligned just so, Cthulhu uh, destroying humanity is inevitable. The discovery of this truth that renders all kind of theological, you know, truths they thought they knew before uh, just meaningless. Uh, it, dro it drove these men unbearably mad for a naturalistic fusion of horror and science fiction, which presumptions about the nature of reality are eroded. Five, that technological and social progress since classical times have facilitated the repression of an awareness of the magnitude and malignity of the macrocosm in which the human microcosm is contained a calculated repression of the horrifying nature of the cosmos as a reaction to its essential awfulness. That's a lot of words. Basically, we've become so detached from nature and spirituality thanks to technological advances that we've forgotten the reality of certain ancient monsters. We've come to falsely think are nothing more than folklore and superstition. Lovecraft makes us wonder if monsters of old, monsters we'd forgotten about are all too real. Six, having protagonists who are helpless in the face of unfathomable and inescapable powers, which reduces humans from a privileged position to insignificance and incompetence. Your weapons and instincts are meaningless in the great face of Cthulhu. Man is no match for this ancient beast. Uh, seven, preoccupation with, uh, you know, uh, visceral textures, protein, semi-gelatinous substances, and slime, as opposed to other more traditional horror elements such as blood, bones, or corpses. Right, this is uh, the weird part. Monsters with Lovecraft, they don't always take human shape, rarely do, or even a shape that can properly be described. They don't have muscled bodies or, you know, even a solid mass. They're, they're just something else, something other, something our feeble minds can't possibly understand or articulate. Pushing horror mystery here, you know, fear of the unknown. Uh, Cthulhu, arguably Lovecraft's most famous horror creation by far, would fit almost all these categories to a T. Uh, Cthulhu is a fictional entity first introduced in Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu, 
first published, as I said, in Weird Tales in 1928. Lovecraft transcribed the pronunciation of Cthulhu and said, the first syllable pronounced gutturally and very thickly. The U is about like that in full, and the first syllable is not unlike clul in sound. Hence, the H represents the guttural thickness. Guttural thickness. No thanks, Lovecraft, you dickhead. Uh, modern pronunciation of this word seems to have clearly settled on Cthulhu. Easy to write about how it's essentially impossible to say, and you got to get all guttural and shit when you don't have to fucking say it. When you don't live in the age of TV, film, podcasts, and audiobooks. <laughs> when you just get to write things. Uh, according to Lovecraft, this pronunciation is merely the closest that the human vocal apparatus can come to reproducing the syllables of an ancient alien language. Cthulhu has uh, been spelled in various ways over the uh, in, over the course of many stories, including Tulu, Cthulhu, uh, Cthulhu. The creature is described as a monster of vaguely anthropoid outline, but with an octopus-like head whose face was a mass of feelers. I said this in the beginning. Uh, a scaly, rubbery-looking body, prodigious claws on hind and forefeet, and long, narrow wings behind. Basically, Cthulhu uh, said to resemble an octopus, a dragon, a human caricature, hundreds of meters tall, with webbed, human-looking arms, legs, and a pair of rudimentary wings on its back. Its head is depicted as similar to the entirety of a gigantic octopus, with an unknown number of tentacles surrounding its supposed mouth, said to be so terrible to behold that it destroys the sanity of those who see it. I still think Nimrod, with his enormous size advantage, our god here on Time Suck, would kick the shit out of Cthulhu. Nimrod's a giant space sasquatch. Right? The size roughly of an entire galaxy with the head of a chupacabra. He rides a giant black unicorn, so big it has flaming suns for eyes. Still, Cthulhu, uh, pretty scary in Lovecraft's world. And he spent more time revealing his monst monstrosity than I have with Nimrod. Hail Nimrod! Our great god would fucking rip Cthulhu's watery balls off. Make him eat him in his octopus mouth. Uh, Cthulhu is characterized as the leader of the Old Ones, a species that came to Earth from the stars before human life arose. The Old Ones went dormant and their city slipped under Earth's crust beneath the Pacific Ocean. They communicated with humans by telepathy and hidden in corners of the world, uncivilized people remembered and worshipped Cthulhu in cultic rites. These groups had statues of Cthulhu that seemed to be made of materials not found on Earth, little idols, chanted the phrase, Cthulhu, it's literally just fucking constant, just gibberish. <laughs> he wrote, translated into a language people actually speak, uh, in his house at Relay, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. Uh, when conditions are right, the city will rise, and with the help of the eternal Cthulhu cult, Cthulhu will awaken and again rule the world. That's the basic story with Cthulhu. The imprisoned Cthulhu is apparently the source of, const of constant subconscious anxiety for all of mankind. So talk about that with your counselor. Right? If you're like, uh, they can't figure out like why you're, why you're experiencing anxiety, you might want to just bring up Cthulhu. Like, could it be a sleeping monster god that's giving me all this anxiety? I mean, you keep talking about like, you know, childhood trauma and stress from work, but maybe we should touch on monster gods from a different world. Hmm? Uh, does any of that talk I just kind of went over about the mythology there sound familiar in any, in any way? Do you, do you remember the name Madame Helena Blavatsky? We met her, talked about her at length in the Lost City of Atlanta suck back in 2017 in July that year. The main originer of Theosophy. She founded the Theosophical Society in 1875. As presented by Blavatsky, Theosophy teaches that there is an ancient and secretive brotherhood of spiritual adepts known as the Masters, who, although found across the world, are centered in Tibet. Ancient Masters that used to live in secret cities that are now lost or hidden. All kinds of wackadoodles now reference these ancients all over the web presenting themselves as, you know, channels for these uh, ancients, kind of like old ones. You know, they try to sell you their uh, secret knowledge, which I was kidding. According to Blavatsky's teachings, these masters were alive long before archaeological evidence points to human civilization existing, like a long time before. 
They had futuristic and magical cities like Atlantis, you know, four and a half million years ago. They were a different form of human, far more magical and full of supernatural abilities than humans today. Uh, there were the Lemurians, believed by some to still live somehow inside Mount Shasta in some parallel fucking vibrational frequency or some shit. Uh, thought of by some as an ancient alien race, thought of by others like Blavatsky as an ancient form of human existing in an advanced state long before the Atlanteans even. Another root race, quote unquote, as Blavatsky would teach. And they first lived about 35 million years ago. They had all sorts of magical powers, like the ability to astral project, speak through telepathy. Uh, there were, you know, great monsters in their time that they fought against that also had magical powers, a lot of d d shit. Uh, bummer that we've been apparently devolving instead of evolving. They're getting less cool as our species goes on, you know, as time goes on. It's almost like, it's almost like Blavatsky was crazy and full of shit and literally nothing that manipulative lunatic ever wrote was true. Uh, she was incredibly full of shit if you're not familiar. Pathological liar who didn't even try and make her lies believable, yet so many believe her. Uh, in addition to maybe helping fuel the imagination of Lovecraft, which is speculation on my part, she definitely fueled the unfortunate imaginations of many a wackadoodle who doesn't understand that she was just making that shit up. Anyway, these ancient races she spoke of, they lived in long forgotten cities, like I said, ancient cities that, you know, might still exist, but are hidden, either not visible thanks to some parallel dimension-like trickery, or they're deep under the Earth's surface in the hollow Earth, like we talked about in the hollow Earth theory suck. There's a long and rich mythology in theosophy. And Lovecraft references the Theosophist by name in Call of Cthulhu. And I have to think he was extremely familiar with the written work of Lovatsky and other noted Theosophists. His entire Cthulhu mythos uh, feels very, very uh, Theosophy-inspired to me. Um, you know, inspired by their kind of wackadoodle world building. He just didn't like they did present all that shit as being real. You know, when he spoke of ancients, hidden cities, magical powers— all the same stuff that Blavatsky and her, you know, sycophants wrote about. Uh, I guess she was a world builder too, just in the religious, not fictional sense. Uh, too, too bad she didn't have weird tales to write for. Maybe she could have got it out of her system in a different way. Probably not. There's more money in religion than there is in, uh, uh, you know, Pulp Fiction. Now that I brought up world building again, let's dig into uh, Lovecraft's importance to the history of world building here. Lovecraft's contribution to world building comes in the form of the Cthulhu, uh, Cthulhu mythos, which I've referenced several times, which refers to the collected works of H.P. Lovecraft that reference Cthulhu, uh, sort of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe for Eldridge Monsters. Eldridge Monsters are creatures who are uncanny, unearthly, and weird in a supernatural way. The Cthulhu Mythos is a series of tales that describe ordinary New Englanders' encounters with horrific beings of extraterrestrial origin. And what made these stories so good and made H.P. Lovecraft such an influential horror writer was how Lovecraft blended his intimate knowledge of New England's geography and culture with his elaborate and original mythology. He, he had an extremely abnormal and, and mystifying monsters invading the lives and dreams of very normal, mundane New Englanders. It made it, you know, he made it feel like uh, you as his reader could easily see your reality destroyed and watch your mind descend into madness. He created a world so fantastical and tangible that it drew people in, kept them contributing to his mythos, the extended universe, long after his death. Uh, the term Cthulhu mythos, uh, coined by writer August Derleth, frequent contributor to the mythos for many years after Lovecraft died. August Derleth, a correspondent and great admirer of Lovecraft's, used the creature's name to identify the system of lore employed by Lovecraft and his literary successors. In 1937, Derleth wrote the short story, The Return of Hastur and proposed two groups of opposed cosmic entities. The old or ancient ones, he wrote, the elder gods of cosmic good and those of cosmic evil, bearing many names, and themselves of different groups, as if associated with the elements and yet transcending them. For there are the water beings, hidden in the depths, those of air that are the primal lurkers beyond time, 
those of Earth, horrible, animate survivors of distant eons. Durlith was an early sci-fi and horror and fantasy world builder himself, uh, but he and his contemporaries didn't call it world building back then. The term world building, as it applies to fiction, can be traced back to the 1960s. Richard A. Lupoff, sci-fi author and literary expert, first used that term in the way we think of it today in his 1965 book, Master of Adventure, The Worlds of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Uh, Lupoff actually passed away last year in 2020 in Berkeley, California, age 85. And let's talk about that world builder Burroughs, the subject of his 1965, uh, 1965 book for a second. Burroughs was active from 1911 to 1950, mostly famous for his Tarzan series of books and his uh, John Carter of Mars sci-fi series. And also actually the land that time forgot. There were a bunch of shit. Uh, the first book set in a literary universe centered around the island of Caprona, also known as Caspak. Burroughs was a pioneer of world building, a titan in the field of sci-fi and fantasy fiction. And Lupoff was a fellow sci-fi writer and fan of, an expert re regarding him, and another world builder he held an equally high regard, H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame, also referenced as a pioneer of world building in numerous sources, as is C.S. Lewis, creator of Narnia. And there are other far older world building authors in, in some sense, you know, like those French and British writers who wrote stories of Arthurian legends, such as the 12th century British cleric, Joffrey of Monmouth, when we talked about in the main 2019 Legend of King Arthur suck, but they didn't invent new worlds and all new creatures the way 20th century world builders did. They drew inspiration directly from folklore and legend and existing worlds of old stories, you know, passed down orally for many generations long before they were born. Uh, the mythology, like with the Norse sagas before Snorri Sturluson or the Greek gods before Homer, developed through an oral storytelling tradition for centuries and all likelihood before pen was put to paper. Uh, Tolkien, Lewis, and Burroughs took things further and built out worlds without linking their worlds to old legends. They had inspirations, of course, and influences, of, of course, that included old legends, but their stories were more original. And they, and they never claimed their worlds to be anything other than fictional. And because of that, they were able to take more creative license to build their worlds however they pleased. And their worlds would inspire others later, like George Lucas, uh, to build out the Star Wars universe. To bring all this back to Lovecraft, Burrow built his worlds before Lovecraft. The Land the Time Forgot was published in 1918. John Carter of Mars first showed up back in 1912. Tarzan initially showed up in 1912. And while Lovecraft did not likely influence him, he likely influenced Lovecraft. Lovecraft could have influenced both Tolkien and Lewis. They created their worlds after Lovecraft began creating his. Tolkien published The Hobbit in 1937. The Lord of the Rings trilogy would follow in 1954 and 1955. He said he began writing about Middle-earth in the early 1930s. He began writing Lord of the Rings in 1937. C.S. Lewis published The Chronicles of Narnia between 1950 and 1956. Lewis said he first conceived of Narnia in 1939. The Call of Cthulhu first published in 1928, nine years before The Hobbit. And then in the early 30s, other contemporary writers, including Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, Robert Block, uh, Frank Belknap Long, Henry Kuttner, H uh, Henry S. Whitehead, Fritz Lieber, a group referred to as the Lovecraft Circle. Uh, many of them, highly influential authors in their own right, added to the lore of Cthulhu and the, the, the many other great old ones. Lovecraft's loose, panth loose pantheon of ancient powerful deities from the space who once ruled the earth and who have since fallen into a death-like sleep. Lovecraft didn't write an amazing uh, long-form novel like certain other authors like Tolkien. He didn't create the beautiful, imaginative seven-book world of uh, Narnia like Lewis, but he did create a mythos that drew in other lovers of weird and dark shit. He created the pantheon of fake gods and monsters. You know, Cthulhu is one of many, powerful enough to capture the imaginations of his peers, and together they built a world before Tolkien and Lewis and other great world builders like Stephen King. 
So his, his world may have been the first of its kind in the horror space specifically, and his creative world ended up influencing my imagination long before I'd ever heard of him or read his work. Uh, he influenced, as I said earlier, my favorite childhood author, Stephen King. I'll explain how here a little bit. Stephen King's Dark Tower series, over 1.3 million words long, heavily influenced by Lovecraft. King built a, a huge world centered around Roland the Gunslinger and his quest to reach the Dark Tower. Movie was fucking terrible. Uh, book series, so great. Uh, he had the Dark Tower, yeah, Nexus of all universes, the Dark Tower. In, in addition to the seven sequential novels of the series, plus the Little Sisters of Illyria, many of King's other books give nods to the same world and feature the same characters under different names. King's most frequent villain and the Dark Tower villain, uh, the Necromancer, known by many names, most consistently Randall Flagg, described as an accomplished sorcerer and devoted servant of the Outer Dark. He generally aims to bring down civilization through destruction or sowing discontent and conflict in humanity. He's the man in black in the Dark Tower, a nemesis of all that is good and pure. This figure directly mirrors Lovecraft's outer god, uh, Nyarlathotep, who is likewise the most frequently featured entity in the Cthulhu mythos. Unlike most of the outer gods or great old ones who rarely take a form fathomable to the human mind, Nyarlathotep often takes human form in order to collect devotees and spread chaos. He's deceptive and manipulative. He even uses propaganda to achieve his goals. He influences the deeds of men, carries out the evil of larger outer gods as their messenger, as well as the wishes of cults devoted to him. King has all but said that Randall Flagg, especially in The Stand in the Dark Tower series, is one of the many guises of Niar Lethotep. It, which King wrote in 1986, one of my favorite books of King's, seen by far as the, uh, as the author's most Lovecraftian work to some, setting up the idea of a macroverse, later called the Todash Darkness of the Dark Tower series, and ancient otherworldly beings from outer space, a different plane of existence of these entities. The most prominent is it itself, an ancient creature that feeds off of fear and then ultimately people themselves. And it is seen as King's equivalent to Lovecraft's Cthulhu. And in addition to Lovecraft influencing many modern authors, many have also contributed directly to the Cthulhu mythos, like British authors Neil Gaiman and Alan Moore. Big fans of both of them. Uh, Gaiman known primarily for writing the Sandman graphic novel series. Uh, fantastic. The novels American Gods and Coraline. Uh, I didn't realize Coraline was his when I first saw that animated uh, movie. Uh, the young adult fantasy novel, The Graveyard Book. He's, he's won a ton of fiction awards. He's married to creative musical badass Amanda Palmer as well. A Patreon pioneer who helped inspire me to double down on each content early in the formation of Time Suck. So thank you, Amanda. Hail Amanda Palmer. Uh, Gaiman wrote A Study in Emerald, a short story published in 2003 that sets a Sherlock Holmes-type detective story in the universe of Cthulhu, and it won a Hugo Award in 2004. Uh, he also wrote I, Cthulhu, a humorous short story published in 1987, where Cthulhu dictates his autobiography to a human slave, <laughs> telling him stuff like the story of his birth on the planet, and no one knows how the fuck to say this word, <laughs> saying, uh, no, of course I don't know how to spell it. Write it as it sounds. Uh, <laughs> uh, talks about a father who was eaten by his mother and a mother who was subsequently eaten by Cthulhu himself for a few thousand years. Young Cthulhu, uh, the color of a young trout and about four of your feet long, slunk through the swamps of his home planet, eating and avoiding being eaten. Gaiman introduced Lovecraft to many of his own fans, as many other contemporary authors have done. Alan Moore, uh, you may know him. He wrote uh, The Watchmen, V for Vendetta, uh, From Hell and more. Highly acclaimed graphic novel author who's done some really cool runs with uh, Batman and Swamp Thing too. I love his shit. Uh, I got From Hell sitting at home waiting for me to dig in right now. In his Neonomicon four-issue run in 2010, 2011, he sets an FBI investigation in the middle of the Cthulhu mythos. 
In March 2012, the series became the first recipient of the newly created graphic novel category at the Bram Stoker Awards for Horror Fiction. And there are others I can mention if I wanted to turn this whole episode into one big Lovecraft jerk-off fest, which it kind of is. Uh, by the turn of the 21st century, the Cthulhu mythos had become a cultural phenomenon. In addition to metafiction, the mythos inspired music, a lot of it instrumental. I was fucking blown away how much Lovecraftian music there is on YouTube and Spotify right now. So much. Uh, horror movies, you know, uh, perhaps uh, most notably games, including board games, card games. Magic the Gathering has tons of, uh, you know, Lovecraftian monsters as cards. Tabletop role-playing games, you know, Lovecraftian creatures have significantly influenced the world of, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. The only reason there are not a ton of Lovecraft editions of AD&D is because of some publishing rights battle bullshit. There's Lovecraft video, online games from Software's 2015 game Bloodborne. That borrows heavily from Lovecraft's fiction. Uh, uh, pits, you know, players against hordes of eldritch beasts. In October 2018, Focus Home Interactive released a role-playing survival horror video game called Call of Cthulhu. And currently, of course, there is the HBO series Lovecraft Country based on the 2016 novel of the same name, executive produced by J.J. Abrams, Jordan Peele, and others. Jordan Peele, one of the reigning fucking champions of cinematic horror right now, between writing and directing both Us and Get Out. J.J. Uh, Abrams, pretty familiar with world building between his work on the cinematic universes of both Star Trek and Star Wars. And he created Lost, Alias, and other shows. And, and all that speaks of the gravitational pull that Lovecraft has, right? He has two of the world's biggest horror and sci-fi heavyweights right now choosing to spend their time in his mythos. Season two of Lovecraft Country, as I record this, has not been greenlit, but does look like it probably will be for you fans. So what is it about Cthulhu, the Cthulhu mythos, that just pulls so many creative people, so many really critically acclaimed, talented people into its orbit? I, th I think the way his universe has both a definite tone of dread and anxiety and fear with defined entities, but still leaves so much room to play is what makes it so fun, right? There's both, you know, there's, there's some, some boundaries, kind of some, some rules, but also so many unanswered questions that leave uh, room for you to add your own imagination and voice to it. Let's talk about this mythos a bit more. Uh, the essence of the mythos is that the human world and our role in it are an illusion. Humanity is living inside a fragile bubble of perception, unaware of what lies behind the curtains or even of the curtains themselves existing. And our seen dominance over our world is illusory and e ephemeral. According to these writers, humans are blessed in that they do not realize what lies dormant in the unknown lurking places on earth and beyond, right? That, that whole ignorance is bliss. As Lovecraft famously began the call of Cthulhu, the most merciful thing in the world, I think is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. Now and then, individuals can, by accident or carelessness, catch a glimpse of or even confront the ancient extraterrestrial entities which the mythology centers around, uh, usually with fatal consequences. Because of the limitations of the human mind, these deities' appearances are so overwhelming, overwhelming uh, they can easily drive a person insane and often do. Other times, they encounter their non-human worshipers and servants whose existence shatters the worldview of those who stumbled across them. Human followers exist as well in, the, in this universe. Lovecraft's gods and creatures are portrayed as neither good or evil. Within the mythos, these concepts are just, you know, meaningless. They're just concepts invented by our own, by our own consciousness as a way to explain what truly are inexplicable intentions and actions. The Call of Cthulhu was the premier story in which Lovecraft realized and made full use of these themes which is why his mythology would later be named after the creature in this story as it defined a new direction in both his authorship and in the horror fiction genre. I had Kyler listen to an audiobook presentation of this uh, Call of Cthulhu story with me in the truck on the way to school recently. And horror is not his thing, but it really had his attention. It was very cool to see. Uh, not looking at his phone, not getting bored, not talking, 
very unlike him uh, for for a typical drive. You know, uh, there's just an X factor with Lovecraft. On an analytical level, I don't feel like I should like a lot of his stories as much as I do. Like when it comes to a satisfying ending or even the level of terror, I feel like I should be, based on the words on the page, left pretty unpressed, but I'm not. Pretty pretty unimpressed, excuse me, but I'm not. And I can't stop thinking about them later. There's such a linger effect with these stories. Uh, they get better with each reading. They stay with me. There's something intangible, at least to me, about his stories that makes them really special. And I said a few times already, he just gets your imagination going. I found myself writing seeds for a possible horror story of my own, developing uh, you know, some ideas I had previously a little further. Just, just really got me in that mood. <sighs> I get why so many are drawn to him. Uh, the Call of Cthulhu, also the first and only story by Lovecraft for humans and one of the cosmic entities called the Great Old Ones Come Face to Face. And all right, Meat Sacks, now that we've learned a bit about fictional world building and Lovecraft's contribution to it, we've been all fucking nerded out. Let's meet H.P. Lovecraft, the man. Let's get a little biographical and try and gain some insight into how he arrived at his unique understanding of what made horrifying things horrifying. Let's hop into today's Time Suck timeline right after today's sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. 
Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thank you for listening. Now let's meet Mr. Lovecraft. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Lovecraft was born Howard Phillips Lovecraft, HP. Uh, 9 a.m., August 20th, 1890, in Providence, Rhode Island, at his family home at 454, then numbered 194, Angel Street. Spelled with two L's. His mother was uh, Sarah Susan Phillips Lovecraft, who could trace her ancestry to the arrival of George Phillips uh, to Massachusetts way back in 1630. Uh, According to Wikipedia software pioneer, Bill Gates can also trace his lineage to Englishman George Phillips. Uh, Yeah, the guy came from, uh, yeah, Britain to to, uh, Massachusetts. Dude apparently had good genes when it came to thinking up new shit. Uh, Lovecraft's father was Winfield Scott Lovecraft another descendant of English settlers, traveling salesman for Gorman and Co. Silversmiths of Providence. And Lovecraft loved that both of his parents were British, like so much. Not sure anyone loved being British more than HP or of British heritage. More about that at the end of the episode. Lovecraft had an unusual childhood marked by tragedy, possibly sowing the seeds of what made him such a great horror writer later. His traveling salesman father developed a type of mental disorder caused by untreated syphilis when HP was around the age of three. In short, he lost his fucking mind and started talking to people who weren't there and referencing things that never happened and got real paranoid, suffering from paranoid delusions and hallucinations for a few years before being committed to the mental ward of a local hospital in 1893, Butler Hospital in Providence, where his mind would deteriorate further, where he would remain until his death on July 19th, 1898. Terrible way to be introduced to the world. Your earliest and only members of your father are are of a man who is completely out of his mind by the time you meet him. 
Progressive syphilis, really not pretty. We talked about it uh, a long time ago in the Al Capone's Valentine's Day Massacre Suck back in February of 2017. Uh, Treponema pallidum is the bacterium that causes syphilis and subsequently often used uh, to develop into, it often used to develop into neurosyphilis, a bacterial infection of the brain or spinal cord. Neurosyphilis tends to develop about 10 to 20 years after the initial infection with the bacterium. There are five different forms of neurosyphilis with the most common type being asymptomatic. Papa Lovecraft wouldn't luck out and get the no symptom kind. Another form, uh, general paresis, is probably the type that Papa Lovecraft had. This form leads to, often leads to, numerous and severe health problems, including paranoia, mood swings, emotional troubles, personality changes, weakened muscles, and a loss of the ability to use language, and dementia. Holy shit, not a fun way to go out, to have both your mind and body just deteriorate. With the death of Lovecraft's father, the upbringing of the boy fell to his mom, his two aunts, who he remained close to for the rest of his life, Lillian and Annie, and especially his grandfather, prominent industrialist, Whipple Van Buren Phillips. Holy shit, that is a name. It's not a nickname. That's a, that's a birth name. Who the fuck names their kid Whipple? Good old Whipple. <laughs> it's not like his dad had some crazy name. His dad's name was Jeremiah, and Jeremiah named his son Whipple. Whipple to me sounds like a weird, highly caffeinated form of Snapple or something. Right, it's got all the taste of Snapple with a kick of Red Bull or Monster Energy, but times like a thousand. Whipple! When you need to whip your day into shape and get shit done, you pound a can of Whipple, you lazy fuck! Picture Whipple having a very aggressive, verbally abusive marketing campaign. Stop sucking your mama's dick, you basement dwelling mouth breather! Get out there and do something with your life! Drink Whipple! Drowning in a sea of despair? Stuck in the mud of paralyzing depression? Well, get the fuck over it! Wash your feelings down with some fucking Whipple! Got a bad case of the Mondays? Fuck you! Fuck your family! Whipple! Knock one back or throw yourself off a cliff, you piece of shit! Whipple! New kicking cranberry flavor now available. Please let me get that Whipple nonsense out of my system. That was fun for me. Uh, Whipple the man sounds like a good dude. God, I love that name. <laughs> and, I, and I've gone over this so many times, and every time it gets me. Fucking Whipple. At the age of 14, with his mom already deceased, his dad got accidentally crushed to death in a corn gristing mill. That sounds terrible. Thank God being crushed in a corn gristing mill this is no longer a common way to go out. Whipple was a, now a penniless orphan. After moving briefly to Illinois, he returned home to Western Rhode Island, started a grocery store, married into a banking family, parlayed some meager investments into some lumber sales, dodged service in the Civil War, partnered into a railroad, became a postmaster, later made a sum of money in coal, even made some money off of some Idaho mining investments. Then at the height of his career in the early 1870s, a New England depression and some odd business deals pushed him into bankruptcy around 1874. Whipple was done, but not out because he's fucking Whipple. Uh, he busted his ass, rebuilt his life, started over, became a school teacher, member of the Rhode Island legislature, uh, began a sewing machine sales shop, rebuilt his finances. By, 18, by 1878, he met a sewing shop repairman and inventor, Jesse Lincoln, seasoned on the novel invention of a hand-operated home silk fringer. God, God, what I wouldn't give for a home silk fringer. I don't even know what that is. Uh, Phillips catapulted the item to make a fortune. Then he got gold fever. There's gold in them there hills. hills. Uh, in the early 1880s, which led him to Idaho, his early mining interest actually led him into the Snake River Valley of Idaho Territory. We talked about that place in the 19th century uh, Idaho gold boom that happened there in the episode about Idaho, my grandpa. Ward motherfucking Hall. Hail Papa Ward. Uh, then he came back to Rhode Island, invested in some railroads, was doing great when Lovecraft was little. He was doing well enough to pay for HP's, uh, you know, dad's medical bills and raise young Lovecraft in his home. Lovecraft was a precocious youth. He was reciting poetry at the age of two, reading at age three, writing at age six or seven. And old Whipple 
uh, introduced him to unnamed early science fiction authors in addition to giving him the classics. And they had quite the, they had quite the library in the Whipple home and he fed young HP's imagination. Uh, he would read young Lovecraft gothic horror fiction. HP loved it. His grandpa apparently loved to tell a good story. Was a was a good storyteller, and uh, would sometimes even ad lib stories of gods and ghosts and monsters. Oh, Whipple! He was so much more than overly caffeinated Snapple. Yeah, he passed a love of literature and specifically fiction to his precocious grandson. Lovecraft would later recall reading the Arabian Nights by the age of five. In 1896, at the age of six, HP was reading Greek mythology and then Roman mythology planting early seeds for his invention of his own pantheon of gods later. Lovecraft later said that as a child, he was enamored by the Roman pantheon of, pantheon of gods, accepting them as genuine expressions of divinity and foregoing his Christian upbringing at an early age. He recalled at five years old being told the Santa Claus was not real, and he retorted by asking, God is not equally a myth? Let's do this at five. Uh, also at the age of six, his grandmother Roby died, uh, Whipple's wife, by his own account, her death sent his entire family into a gloom from which it never fully recovered. Got some darkness infused, more darkness into his early life between dad and this. His mother's and aunt's wearing of black mourning dresses terrified him. And it is at this time that Lovecraft, approximately five and a half years old, started having nightmares that would inform his later writing. And he started writing his own weird fiction right around the time of his grandmother's death. First weird story he likely wrote was The Noble Eavesdropper, possibly dating to 1896. Uh, he unfortunately later, later destroyed the story. Uh, like his father, Lovecraft himself was also, uh, I'd say, I want to say fragile in some ways. During this long period of his childhood, or a long period of his childhood, and then early adulthood following his father's death, Lovecraft was thrown into an uh, unhealthily close relationship with his mom, who was still suffering from the trauma of her husband's illness and death. She developed a pathological love-hate relationship with her son. She had to be around her only child or sweet baby boy all the time. She coddled him, also could be cruel to him, lashing out, overly criticizing him, destroying his confidence. She had her own struggles with mental health that Lovecraft witnessed. She was a nervous person, a fearful person who comes across in de uh, descriptions as being very melodramatic, wild mood swings. Uh, she was mentally ill, uh, borderline agoraphobic, terrified apparently of the world outside her home. She was also very puritanical, rigid, not affectionate. She sounds like she was a lot to deal with. And Lovecraft's relationship with her may have factored into his own later romantic problems with women. He was not a ladies' man. He was a weird loner. Mother, Why? Why must you put lady troubles into my feeble boy brain mother? Lovecraft would spend many of his school years at home, too ill to go to school. He suffered from bouts of crippling anxiety and depression. That was that uh, fragileness I, I mentioned earlier. At home, he became an avid reader, devouring works on a variety of texts. Lovecraft loved the works of Edgar Allan Poe, uh, also developed a special interest in astronomy. And around the age of eight, 1898, he discovered science, first chemistry, then astronomy. He began to produce hectograph journals, the Scientific Gazette and the Rhode Island Journal of Astronomy for distribution amongst his friends. Industrious kid. So he's, you know, he's struggling with some stuff, but also getting some stuff put out there. Then on March 28th, 1904, when Lovecraft is at the impressionable age of 13, Grandpa Whipple dies of a stroke at the age of 70. But then they, you know, feed him some of his own blood and he's fucking back because of fucking Whipple. No, uh, this would be devastating to HP. He'd been born into affluence, I'm sure developed certain expectations for how prosperous his future would be, and now these expectations are smashed to pieces. Lovecraft and his mom and his sister and her sisters, his aunts, are shocked to discover that Whipple's fortunes worse than they'd feared. By 1900, Whipple's various business accounts or concerns had suffered a downturn. His wealth was fading. He was forced to let his family's hired servants go, leaving Lovecraft, Whipple, uh, Whipple and one of his aunts alone in the family home. In the spring of 1904, a few months before he died, Whipple's largest business venture had suffered a catastrophic failure, and then he just ran out of time in life before he could rebuild his wealth again. 
Lovecraft and his mom were forced to move out of their lavish Victorian home almost immediately after his funeral. Some sources say they were kicked out the very next day. That feels a little dramatic to me, but maybe. And uh, they moved into the comparatively cramped quarters of one half of a duplex at 598 Angel Street. Lovecraft later called this time one of the darkest times of his life. He said he thought about killing himself. He said the only reason he didn't was because he still wanted to learn so much about the world. There was more to learn. Curiosity kept him around, truly, according to what he wrote. Hail Nimrod, good to be curious. Uh, he thankfully kept writing. Things got a little better by 1906. Lovecraft's first appearance in print occurred in 1906 at the age of 16 when he wrote a letter on an uh, ast astronomical matter to the Providence Sunday Journal. Shortly thereafter, he began writing a monthly astronomy column for the Pawtucket Valley Gleaner, a rural paper. He later wrote columns for the Providence Tribune, the Providence Evening News, as well as the Asheville, Gaz Asheville Gazette News. Then in 1908, just prior to his graduation from high school, Lovecraft's troubles returned. Already suffering from sort of a, a sort of nervous tick for the past several months, if not years, and a sudden spastic movements his classmates would later describe, he suffered a full-on nervous breakdown that compelled him to leave school without a diploma. The mental health of this family, so fragile. And, and fragile is probably not the best word. I don't, I don't want to mean like weak. They just susceptible, maybe just extra susceptible to, uh, to mental illness. He now didn't get into Brown University like he'd once hoped. And this fact and his consequent failure to ever finish high school were sources of great shame to Lovecraft later in life. He fell into a deep depression in 1908, later writing he could hardly bear to see or speak to anyone and liked to shut out the world by pulling down dark shades and using artificial light. So he's just hanging out in the house with mom and his aunts, got the shades drawn, uh, real depressed. Poor bastard. He was struggling, stuck at home with, uh, you know, uh, mama whose own mind was deteriorating, as you'll soon see. Lovecraft became a reclusive figure for several years, staying up late night, uh, you know, late into the evening, studying, reading, writing, then sleeping late into the day, living off of a dwindling inheritance. From 1908 to 1913, Lovecraft was a virtual hermit, doing very little other than pursuing his astronomical interests and maybe some poetry writing, maybe thinking about some future stories. In 1914, Lovecraft joins the United Amateur Press Association. This was big for him, a decision that he said will save him from becoming a lifelong recluse. He wrote, in 1914, when the kindly hand of amateurdom was first extended to me, I was as close to the state of vegetation as any animal well can be. With the advent of the United, I obtained a renewal to live, a renewed sense of existence as other as other than a superfluous weight, ah, the way these fucking flowery language be, and found a sphere in which I could feel that my efforts were not wholly futile. For the first time, I could imagine that my clumsy gropings after art were little more than faint cries lost in an unlisting world. So dramatic, but good writer. I found his community, his own cult of the curious. He found some like-minded folk and they saved him from oblivion. Have you found your tribe, dear meat sack? If not, you better get to looking. Seems better than constantly feeling like the uh, odd one out, doesn't it? A lot, of, a lot of different folks in the world. Whatever kind of person you are, there are other people like you out there. Uh, 1915, the following year, Lovecraft launched his self-published magazine, The Conservative, for which he wrote several essays and other pieces. He was extremely conservative. We'll reference that kind of at the end. Uh, in 1916, Lovecraft published his early short story, The Alchemist, in the main UAPA journal. While he dabbled in fiction early on, going back to early childhood, Lovecraft has now become more serious about writing stories. In 1917, he tries to join the army, but mama says no. She interferes in some way that his letters don't make exactly clear, and he's not enlisted. Uh, the fact that she interfered at all when he is 27 years old speaks volumes about their dysfunctional relationship. There is no way my mom would be messing with my shit at the age of 27. If she showed, if I was trying to get in the army and she showed up at the recruit, recruiting office, I'd be like, get the fuck out of here, mom. Go on, get, scat, scat. What are you doing here? You lost your mind? 
Uh, maybe I just pretend not to know her. My mom? I don't know who the fuck that crazy lady is. You should call the police. I will press charges. Go on, get lady. Get, go on, scat. Uh, Lovecraft then attempts to enroll in the Rhode Island National Guard and is rejected for medical reasons, possibly also due to his uh, mom interfering. In 1918, still living at home with mother, Lovecraft witnesses Susie, his mom, suffer a full-on nervous breakdown and then move out to live with her other sister, Lillian. Neighbor and friend Clara Hess, interviewed 30 years later in 1948, recalls instances of Susie describing weird and fantastic creatures that rushed out from behind buildings and from corners at dark. Sounds like more than nervous breakdown, like a full schizophrenic episode. Uh, did these creatures influence H.P. Lovecraft's later works? Was he, uh, you know, talking to his mom about all this, fueling her imagination with his own creatures? Was she fueling his imagination with the things that she's seeing? We don't know. In the same account, Hess describes a time when they crossed paths in downtown Providence and Susie was excited and apparently did not know where she was. And by excited, I think she means like, like frantic, you know, just, just doesn't does know what's going on. So both parents suffering from extreme severe mental illness. Uh, I wonder if she also ended up with syphilis. That's never said in sources. Both parents speaking of things no one else can see. That's what he sees growing up. Uh, his mom claiming to see actual monsters. He would later devote the bulk of his writing to characters being driven mad by mysterious entities, which most of the time could not be seen. No coincidence there, I am sure. Clearly, all of this weighed heavily on his psyche. How could it not? Susie, uh, Susie was admitted to Butler Hospital, same place her husband, H.P.'s father, uh, where he stayed and died. Lovecraft would visit her there often, walk in the grounds with her. He also spends more time writing now. There's a little breathing room away from mom. 1920, Lovecraft begins publishing the earliest stories that fit into the Cthulhu mythos. The poem, Niar Lethotep, and the short story, The Crawling Chaos, are written in late 1920. Following in early 1921 comes The Nameless City, the first story that falls definitively within the Cthulhu mythos. Uh, in it is found one of Lovecraft's most enduring bits of writing, a couplet recited by his creation, Abdul Alzred. That is not dead which can eternal lie, and with strange eons even death may die. Pretty cool. Uh, May 24th, 1921, when HP is 30, Lovecraft's mom dies where his father has died, Butler Hospital. Uh, she dies after a bungled gallbladder operation. Lovecraft's initial reaction expressed in a letter nine days after Susie's death was that of extreme nervous shock that crippled him physically and emotionally. And he again remarks that he finds no reason to continue living, but he thankfully does and keeps writing. Just a few months afterwards, he meets the only known romantic interest of his life, Sonia Green, a Russian Jewish woman, seven years Lovecraft senior, a Pulp Fiction author herself, uh, not nearly as successful, uh, amateur publisher. Uh, she would later remark that Lovecraft was a perfectly capable lover, but that she taught him how to, well, pleasure a woman before her. If, uh, it sounds as if he, uh, you know, just never had sex. Uh, and not only that, never had been romantic with any other woman in any other way. He was such a loner. He was able to resist the temptations of Lucifina. That's how he's able to write so many stories. Be gone, Lucifina! Right? If I was asexual, I probably could have written 75 novels by now. Instead of zero. <laughs> instead of zero. Uh, yeah, that's what I'll blame. Uh, 1923. This is a big year for Lovecraft. That's when uh, the new horror fiction magazine Weird Tales uh, buys some of his first stories, giving him his first taste of literary success. Previous publishing of his fiction had only occurred in amateur publications. Following year, another big one. March 3rd, 1924, he marries Sonia Green, moves into Sonia's apartment in Brooklyn. His aunts are not pleased. Family does not approve of this relationship. Uh, but initial prospects for the couple seem good. Lovecraft had gained a foothold as a professional writer. Sonia had a successful hat shop back when people had successful hat shops on Fifth Avenue in New York. He even gets a job writing with previous Time Suck topic, famed escaped artist and medium debunker Harry Houdini. 
Two of them wrote Imprisoned with the Pharaohs, a short story commissioned by Weird Tales founder and owner J.C. Henneberger. Lovecraft was paid a hundred bucks, a little over 1,500 in present day dollars. And that was the most money he would ever receive for an advance, which kind of speaks to how much, how much money he was making. Uh, tying this into a recent Seven Wonder Sucks at 1910 in Egypt in this tale, Houdini finds himself kidnapped by a tour guide who resembles an ancient pharaoh and is thrown down a deep hole near the Great Sphinx of Giza. While attempting to find his way out, he stumbles upon a gigantic ceremonial cavern and encounters the real-life deity that inspired the building of the Sphinx, becomes face-to-face with the god. Uh, facing financial problems, Henneberger wanted to associate the popular, at the time, Harry Houdini with the magazine to try to boost readership. Makes sense. Uh, Houdini would uh, hire Lovecraft for two more small jobs before Houdini died in 1926. Lovecraft's bright fortunes don't last long in New York. The hat shop soon goes bankrupt. Lovecraft turned down a chance to edit a companion magazine to Weird Tales. Sonia's health took a downturn uh, that forced her to spend some time in a New Jersey sanitarium. A lot of things going wrong. Uh, Lovecraft attempted to secure work locally, but few were willing to hire a 34-year-old man with almost no job experience. And in the few that were, uh, he turned down the jobs that were offered. Right, He got a job offer in Chicago in 1924. Fucking turned that down. Stubborn dude. Very stubborn dude. Stubborn, yeah, stubborn dude. Probably because he uh, had some family money, money. Jesus Christ, I can't talk to you. He had some family money early on. Come on, motherfucker. Get the pronunciation out. And uh, he had some family money early Family money early on. There we go. Slow down. Maybe I had too much coffee this morning. And, uh, and he didn't have kids. So maybe there wasn't quite the same pressure to work. But even then, as you'll see, uh, some of the times he struggles through and just refuses to take his other jobs, he really was committed to his craft. He was so passionate about the stories he was writing. Even though they were making him very little money, uh, he just he refused to take any jobs that would take him away from writing more of these stories. It is it is admirable in that artistic way. Uh, January 1st, 1925, HP's wife Sonia moves to Cleveland for a job. And now 34-year-old Lovecraft is alone. He stays behind. The two of them will never get legally divorced, but will separate and never spend time with one another again. Uh, the two actually agreed to an amicable divorce a few years later. And Sonia would later remarry, not knowing the divorce was never finalized. Uh, Lovecraft now moves into a single apartment near a rundown Brooklyn area called Red Hook. His estranged wife actually helps him pay his rent for a while. He's so poor still, even with that help, that according to one letter he wrote, he lived for three days off of one loaf of bread, one can of cold beans, and a small hunk of cheese. Shortly after moving into this apartment, uh, his apartment is burglarized, leaving him with only the clothes he's wearing. That's his only possession. Over the next year, due to poverty and stress, he loses almost 40 pounds. Yeek. Also writes the outline for The Call of Cthulhu. It's a sad man, disillusioned with life, thinking of stories revolving around human insignificance and despair. Finally, in early 1926, plans are made for Lovecraft to return to Providence, the Providence he misses so keenly. He returns to live with his two aunts. If mommy isn't around, I'll live with aunties. Fuck yeah. Nice. Uh, he returns to live with Lillian and Annie. Uh, and they never, again, who had never approved of his marriage, they're happy to see him come back. And I think his uncle, Ed, he's never listed specifically, uh, but marriage records show that, you know, Ed was uh, married to Annie. Uh, sorry, sources aren't terribly clear on this marriage. He just he just uh, uh, mentioned a few times. Lillian is a widow. Annie is, I think, married to Ed. Crazy how creatively successful this dude is viewed as now, but how financially unsuccessful he was in life. It is a nice reminder that money alone does not dictate success, right? Just because something isn't financially rewarding you, it doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't good or valuable. doesn't mean it's not great. Uh, when Lovecraft returns to Providence on April 17th, 1926, at the age of 35, settling at 10 Barn Street, north of Brown University, 
he starts writing some of his most, you know, what will be some of his best known pieces. The Call of Cthulhu came, comes out again in 1928, and we'll return to that story in a bit. In his final years, Lovecraft continued to remain barely able to support himself. He gets numerous stories published in Weird Tales and other similar pulp magazines that have sprung up, but again, they just never pay much, and they never lead to anything more substantial in his lifetime. In 1933, not long after Lillian dies, Lovecraft and his other aunt, Annie, and I assume Uncle Ed, move to a smaller house. He continues to write prolifically, but now his stories become increasingly lengthy and complex, and a lot of the things he's writing now won't get published in his lifetime. We'll go over one of these stories later at the Mountains of Madness. His stories become more difficult to sell. He's forced to uh, support himself or at least make a little bit of money uh, through ghostwriting, stories for others, a little bit of poetry, a little bit of nonfiction. Uh, by 1936, uh, the illness that would cause his own death, cancer of the intestine, had already progressed so far that little could be done to treat it. Lovecraft attempted to carry on in increasing pain, refusing to see a doctor because doctors and hospitals scared him. Uh, uh, I don't blame him considering what, you know, happened with his own parents. On June 11th, 1936, Lovecraft, good friend and fellow fantasy writer, Robert Howard takes his own life. Howard is regarded as the father of the sword and sorcery fantasy subgenre. Most famous work is Conan the Barbarian. Uh, he built that universe. So thank you, Robert. I love that universe. Uh, Robert liked Lovecraft very close to his mom. And when his mom fell into a coma, when he was just 30 years old in a moment of extreme despair, he walked out to his car grabbed his pistol, and quickly shot himself in the head. Lovecraft, at this point, already very ill, and now he's heartbroken. He and Robert had written many, many a letter back and forth over the years. They become very close. And then he is, uh, Lovecraft is finally forced to enter Jane Brown Memorial Hospital due to his cancer in Providence uh, on May, on, excuse me, on March 10th, 1937, where he will die just five days later at the age of 46. He's then buried March 18th at the Phillips family plot at Swan Point Cemetery. He died after never having uh, had a true book published in his lifetime, but he did leave behind more than 60 short stories and a few novel and novellas, including the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Lovecraft's passing was mourned by a small but devoted following of colleagues and aspiring writers with whom he corresponded and collaborated. Two of these friends, August Durleth, Durleth excuse me, and Donald Wandre, formed a publishing company called Arkham House to promote and preserve Lovecraft's work. Eventually, Lovecraft's work became available in paperback, and was translated into a dozen languages, so you know many could more could hear of Lovecraft now. And Arkham, if it sounds familiar, was a fictional Massachusetts city in Lovecraft country. The New England setting used by Lovecraft and his stories, many of his stories, and, and Arkham Asylum, fictional institution in DC Comics, Batman stories, part of the DC Comics universe, named after Lovecraft's Arkham. A psychiatric hospital in prison, fitting nod to Lovecraft's obsession with madness. Let's now hop out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Now that we know a little bit more about H.P. Lovecraft, the man, let's examine the short story that would introduce the uh, Cthulhu mythos to the world and build a begin. Yeah, yeah, to the world. Uh, he said he got this idea for the first chapter, or he got the idea for the first chapter of Call of Cthulhu from a dream. The first seed of the story's First chapter, The Horror in Clay, came from a dream he had in 1919 when he was 28, in which he uh, described briefly in two different letters sent to his friend Reinhard Kleiner on May 21st and December 14th, 1920. In the dream, Lovecraft is visiting an antiquity museum in Providence, attempting to convince the aged curator there to buy an odd kind of uh, bas relief Lovecraft himself had sculpted, uh, who initially scoffed at him for trying to sell something recently made to a museum of antique objects in the dream, Lovecraft answered the curator with the response, why do you say that this thing is new? 
The dreams of men are older than brooding Egypt or the contemplative Sphinx or garden-girdled Babylon, and this was fashioned in my dreams. Man, dude had way smarter dreams than I do. Uh, apparently made a lot more sense. I hardly ever remember my dreams, and when I do remember my dreams, it's usually something super random and fucked up. Like I'm dating my former mother-in-law, but I don't want to. I don't want to be dating her, and but I have to because that's how I keep my dog alive. And I can't go to France, you know. Uh, everyone's mad because the train is late, and I don't even want to be on the train because you know I got to be back in the office to make a sandwich. I don't get a seed for a cool short story. I just wake up with a feeling of what the fuck is wrong with me. Lovecraft then used this uh, dream for a brief synopsis of a new story outlined in his notebook first in August of 1925, which developed organically. Uh, out of the idea of what the base relief in the dream might have actually depicted in a footnote for his writing of this dream, Lovecraft finish, finishes with a suggestion, add good development and describe nature of base relief. Uh, wrote that note to himself for future reference. Once he drafted The Call of Cthulhu, HP uh, didn't love it actually. He didn't hate it either, but just wasn't his favorite story. Lovecraft regarded the short story as rather middling, not, a, not as bad as the worst, but full of cheap and cumbrous touches. Uh, initially, Weird Tales rejected the story. It was only after a friend of Lovecraft's lied to the editor, told him that Lovecraft was thinking of submitting it elsewhere, that he got it accepted for publication. That's, that's a good friend. Now let's go through the story point by point. It's not a long tale. Let's dig into the beginning of H.P.'s world of cosmic horror. Uh, the story's narrator, Francis Wayland Thurston, recounts his discovery of various notes left behind by his great uncle, George Gamble Angel, prominent professor of Semitic languages at Brown University, who died in the winter of 1926. And I love that the professor's name uh, is spelled with two L's, just like the street Lovecraft lived on with uh, Papa Whipple and the house after that as well. Uh, love little personal touches like that. So, the, Okay, so the story begins. The most merciful thing in the world, I think, is the inability of the human mind to correlate all its contents. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of a black sea of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. The sciences, each straining in its own direction, have hitherto harmed us little. But someday the piecing together of disassociated knowledge will open up such terrifying vistas of reality and of our frightful position therein that we shall either go mad from the revelation or flee from the deadly light into the peace and safety of a new dark age. These opening lines, some of the most famous words H.P. Lovecraft ever wrote, work to frame the fear an awe-inspiring cosmological scale of the Cthulhu mythos revelations that are to follow. The unfathomable power, remoteness, and magnitude of Lovecraft's beast remind Thurston of mankind's insignificance as nascent colonizers of a planet hanging in the midst of black seas of infinity. I think I said it singular earlier and I messed up. Thurston's nihilistic tone betrays the gravity of his findings even before he has related them to the reader. Now we get into the story. It's actually several stories. All the notes of people who have, in one way or another, interacted with these strange beings. Uh, the first chapter, horror in the horror in clay, concerns a small base relief, right? The sculpture, uh, things came from his dreams, uh, found among the notes. It seemed to be a sort of monster, or symbol representing a monster, of a form which only a diseased fancy could conceive. If I say that my somewhat extravagant imagination yielded simultaneous pictures of an octopus, a dragon, and a human caricature, I cannot be unfaithful to the spirit of the thing. Cthulhu! This is Thurston's depiction, or description of the ceramic sculpture of Cthulhu that his granduncle possessed. Here's where the theme of language first comes in. Thurston can describe other people's descriptions of it, but he still starts to doubt his sense of language and reality. 
Despite the fact that Thurston can see what the creature looks like, its appearance is still baffling and otherworldly. In fact, the statue is so strange that Thurston feels the need to justify what he sees by blaming his extravagant imagination. The sculpture is the work of Henry Anthony Wilcox, a student at the Rhode Island School of Design, who based his creation on a dream Henry had of great cyclopean cities of titanic blocks and sky-flung monoliths, all dripping with green ooze and sinister with latent horror. Before his death, the narrator's uncle Angel had also discovered reports of mental illness and outbreaks of group folly or mania around the world, including a group of people who dressed in white robes while awaiting a glorious fulfillment. Coat! 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 The second chapter, The Tale of Inspector Lagrasse, discusses the first time the professor had heard the word Cthulhu and seen a similar image. At the 1908 meeting of the American Archaeological Society in St. Louis, Missouri, a New Orleans police official named John Raymond Legra uh, Legrasse asked the assembled antiquarians to identify an idol carved from a mysterious greenish-black stone. Legrasse had discovered the relic months before in the swamp south of New Orleans during his raid on a voodoo cult. The idol resembles Wilcox's sculpture from the first chapter and represented a thing which seemed instinct with a fearsome and unnatural mal malignancy, was of a somewhat bloated corpulence and squatted evilly on a rectangular block or pedestal covered with undecipherable characters. On November 1st, 1907, Legrasse led a party of fellow policemen in search of several women and children who disappeared from a squatter community. Lovecraft now writes, Only poetry or madness could do justice to the noises heard by Legrasse's men as they plowed on to the black morass, toward the red glare and the muffled tom-toms. There are vocal qualities peculiar to men and vocal qualities peculiar to beasts, and it is terrible to hear the one when the source should yield the other. Police found the victims oddly marred, bodies being used in a ritual where a hundred men, all of a mentally aberrant type, were brain bellowing and writhing, and repeatedly chanting the phrase, Cthulhu, After killing five of the participants and arresting 47 others, Legrasse interrogated the men. Before learning the central idea of their loathsome faith, they worshipped, so they said, of the great old ones who lived ages before there were any men and formed a cult which had never died, hidden in distant wastes and dark places all over the world into the time when the great priest Cthulhu, from his dark house in the mighty city of Relay, under the waters, should rise and bring the earth again beneath his sway. Someday he would call, when the stars were ready and the secret cult would always be waiting to liberate him. Prisoners identify the confiscated idol as Cthulhu himself uh, and translate the mysterious phrase. I was saying that the fucking gibberish into in his house at Relay, dead Cthulhu waits dreaming. Uh, one particularly talkative cultist known in the story as Old Castro named the center of their cult as Irem, the city of pillars in Arabia and referred to a phrase in the Necronomicon. That is not dead, which can eternal lie. And with strange eons, even, de even death may die. Yeah, I said that uh, earlier. The Necronomicon, a fictional grimoire or book of curses that appears in several of Lovecraft's tales. Uh, for Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi fans, this Necronomicon would be the inspiration for the Evil Dead trilogy's Necronomicon. Fuck yeah. Uh, also known as the Book of the Dead and the Notrum, the Notrum Demento. It's an ancient Sumerian text that has the power to harness the uh, Kandarian demon an ancient demonic spirit that is the primary source for the creation of deadites and several other types of supernatural occurrences upon the world of the living. Basically, in the uh, Evil Dead, some college kids find this book, accidentally release a bunch of demonic entities, all hell breaks loose, and chaos ensues. And it's a very, very fun, uh, cult classic, campy, you know, uh, B-horror franchise. 
This is my boomstick. Quote from Army of Darkness. How can you not love Ash? Uh, and the book is based, uh, the book this you know trilogy is based around is inspired by Lovecraft. So I thought that was cool. Okay, back to Inspector Legrasse. He's spoken with some cultists. Now he's come to the 1908 meeting of the American Archaeological Society in St. Louis to ask them if they knew anything about this Cthulhu, if they recognized the small carven idol the cultists in Louisiana were found worshiping. One of the academics present at the meeting, a guy named William Channing Webb, professor of anthropology at Princeton University, states that during an 1860 expedition, to the western coast of Greenland, the mystery builds. He encountered a singular tribe of degenerate Eskimos. And by the way, <laughs> he's referring to this one group as degenerate because of their worshiping, not as all Eskimos being degenerate. Uh, whose religion, a curious form of devil worship, chilled him with its deliberate bloodthirstiness and repulsiveness. Webb claims the Greenland cult possessed both the same chant and a similar hideous fetish. Thurston, the narrator, reflects that my attitude was still one of absolute materialism as I wish it still were. Meaning by this time, reading his grandfather's notes, he was still a skeptic, but he'd soon no longer be. Now on to the third chapter, The Madness from the Sea. Thurston reads an article dated April 18th, 1925 from the Sydney Bulletin, an Australian newspaper. He begins uh, by expressing his deep regret that he ever found the Sydney Bulletin article that led him to, to Johansson's diary. It begins, if heaven ever wishes to grant me a boon, it will be a total F... Uh, a facing of the results of a mere change which fixed my eye on a certain stray piece of shelf paper. The article reports the discovery of a derelict ship in the Pacific Ocean with only one survivor, a Norwegian sailor named Gustav Johansson, a second mate on board the Emma, a schooner which had originally sailed from New Zealand. On March 22nd, the Emma encountered a heavily armed yacht, the Alert, crewed by a, quote, queer and evil-looking crew of Kanakas and half-castes from Dunedin, New Zealand. Kanaka means South Sea Islander in this context. It can also mean Native Hawaiian. Uh, Dunedin, that city of 135,000 people looks so fucking cool, by the way. Beauty of a city. Holy shit. I looked it up and I, uh, cause I wanted to know how to pronounce that word. My instinct was to say Dundin. What the hell? And fell in love with the place. Anyway, cannot, cannot, uh, not comment on how beautiful that city looks. Back to the puzzle Lovecraft's narrator is piecing together now. After being attacked by the alert without, provo uh, provo oh my God, provocation, the crew of the Emma killed everyone aboard, but lost their own ship in the battle. Commandeering the opponent's vessel, the surviving crew members travel on and arrive at an uncharted island now. With the exception of Johansson and a fellow sailor who then died as they made their way back to Auckland, uh, due to madness from seeing whatever was on that uncharted island, the remaining crew members perish on the island. Johansson never reveals their cause of death. Thurston travels to New Zealand and then Australia, where at the Australian Museum he views a statue retrieved from the alert with a cuttlefish head, dragon body, scaly wings, and hieroglyphed pedestal. Fucking Cthulhu again. Same monster those cult weirdos in Louisiana were worshiping. Same monster from Greenland. Thurston now travels to Oslo, Norway, another gorgeous city, holy shit, uh, where he learns that Johansson died suddenly. Johansson's widow provides Thurston with a manuscript written by her late husband, which reveals the fate of everyone on board the Emma. Thurston writes these lines after apprehending jo Johansson's diary. I now felt gnawing at my vitals, that dark terror which will never leave me till I too am at rest, accidentally or otherwise. In the diary, the uncharted island Johansson comes across in the South Pacific is described as a coastline of mingled mud, ooze, and weedy cyclopean masonry, which can be nothing less than the tangible substance of Earth's supreme terror, the nightmare corpse city of Relay. Dun, dun, dun! Cthulhu City. 
Uh, the crew struggle in comprehending the non-Euclidean geometry of their surroundings. When one of the sailors accidentally opens a monstrously carven portal, he releases none other than Cthulhu himself. The thing cannot be described. There is no language for such abysmal... <laughs> there is no language for such abysms of shrieking and immemorial lunacy, such eldritch contradictions of all matter, force, and cosmic order. A mountain walked or stumbled... It lumbered slobberingly into sight and gropingly squeezed its gelatinous green immensity through the black doorway. The stars were right again, and what an age-old cult had failed to do by design, a band of innocent sailors had done by accident. After ventillions of years, made up word, but whatever, Great Cthulhu was loose again and ravening for delight. So Johansson and a sailor named Bryden now climb aboard the yacht before sailing away. However, Cthulhu dives into the ocean, pursues their fleeing vessel. Johansson then strangely turns his yacht around, rams it directly into Cthulhu's head, which bursts with a slushy nastiness as of a cloven sunfish, only to immediately begin regenerating. You can't kill Cthulhu. Uh, the alert escapes from Relay with Bryden having gone completely insane. There's that Lovecraftian madness again and dying soon afterwards. After finishing the manuscript, Thurston realizes he's now a possible target, thinking, I think Professor Angel died because he knew too much or because he was likely to learn too much. Whether I shall go now as he did remains to be seen, for I have learned much now. Thurston realizes he has discovered more than he can sanely withstand and fears he has become a target for assassination by Cthulhu cultists. His final line is a send-off. Let me pray that, if I do not survive this manuscript, my executors may put caution before audacity and see that it meets no other eye. This final line implies that the reader, too, has now become cursed! By knowing too much about the Cthulhu cult. Fuck! I've read this story four times now. I'm triple cursed. <laughs> Actually, five times. Damn it! I'm more than... Why did I say triple after four? I'm quintuple... Forget about it. Uh, don't worry about math. Uh, get him, Nimrod! Come on! Fuck Cthulhu up. Okay, now that we know the contents of Cthulhu's story, uh, what about the story made it so scary to initial readers? What about it still creeps out so many in a lingering, memorable way? Literally... Literally, I cannot talk. There's too many old-timey words mixed in with modern words. Oh, when this when this story was voted up by the space lizards, that was part of the part of the fun. I know is how is he going to say all this shit? Um, literary literary motherfucker, <laughs> literary analysts have some thoughts. They feel a lot of the fear and the fear with cosmic horror in general hinges on the premise that we use language to interpret reality, and these monsters are beyond language. Definitely, definitely beyond my grasp of language. So they're beyond our reality. Fear of the unknown is so instinctively strong and they are super unknown. My wife, Lindsay, is super afraid of the possibility of alien species visiting our world in this way. Uh, I find it exciting. She finds it terrifying because of the unknown. In her mind, if aliens are real and if they show up here on earth and then if they encounter us, we have no idea what their intentions are and she thinks they're probably bad, right? What they might do, could do to us. Like if she was a kid in the 1920s, 1930s, weird tales would have scared the shit out of her. Uh, I'm willing to roll the dice. I'm, I'm so curious, right? I want to see him. The theme of what is real, what is reality begins with the fact that Lovecraft composes the call of Cthulhu in the uh, uh, epistle, epistolary format written as a series of documents. Specifically, Lovecraft's story follows a recursive epistolary, fucking nailed it, structure of letters and letters within letters and so forth. Uh, the, the further Thurston delves into these manuscripts and the reported memories and dreamscapes they unfold, the more tenuous his own grip on sanity becomes. The more documents he reads, the more he wonders what is real, what is not real. Is he real? 
Again, I think of Lovecraft's own experiences with insanity here. By the time he wrote all this, his own father had gone mad, died in a mental hospital. Then his mom also went mad, ended up dying in the same mental hospital. He had a nervous breakdown himself, several other episodes of severe depression, several long bouts of crippling anxiety. Of course, one of his greatest fears is going to be to lose your mind. Lovecraft's fiction in this story and others imagines uh, reading and writing as cursed acts and represents the theme of the human quest for forbidden cosmological knowledge to be at once irresistible to a certain kind of intellectual seeker and a cursed enterprise. You can know things about the universe, but only at a price. And there's no guarantee that you'll, even under, that you'll even understand what you learn. And sometimes the price you'll pay for trying to understand is having your grip on reality permanently and irrevocably loosened. What makes Lovecraft's monsters unique, especially for the time he wrote them in, is that they simply defy human comprehension, which explains why the many fumbling attempts by the story's characters to describe them in detail via oral and written forms of communication inevitably fail. What pours out of Cthulhu's monolith is described as a darkness, almost material. A, literal, a literalization of something unknown and insensible to the human mind. Awareness of Cthulhu's reality changes everything the characters think they know about the world. What if all the old religions are wrong? What if, what if there are gods, but just not the gods we've been told to worship? What if there are terrifying gods? And what if they never left the earth? They've been right here with us the whole time, sleeping. And now they're awakening again. And a terror we never even dreamt of is awakening with them. Yeah, it's scary shit. Uh, Lovecraft would write more about Cthulhu and he would introduce new gods and monsters into his growing universe that other authors would then add details to after his death. So who are some of the other beings in this strange fictional universe? Let's meet some of them. But first, and I apologize because I know you already heard some sponsors, uh, one final sponsor. Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Whipple. Made from the makers of Snapple, maybe. It's Whipple. 5% juice. 75,000 milligrams of caffeine. That's damn near 800 cups of coffee worth of caffeine on every single serving. Worried about your heart? Fuck your heart! With just one can a day, Whipple can keep you alive indefinitely, even if your heart is entirely removed. Let Whipple move your blood around. Whipple's for winners. Stop hanging off your daddy's nuts. Take your excuses and shove up your crybaby dickle. Whipple! Drink bleach, eat shit, and die! Drink Whipple! Can't work because you haven't slept in five days? Fuck sleep! Sleep is for losers! Drink Whipple and burn that bed! Sad that your pet died? Shut the fuck up! Pour some Whipple on that puppy, and if it doesn't come back to life, it never loved you in the first place. Lost your sight because a hawk pecked your goddamn eyes out? Cry me a river. Pour me some Whipple. Pour Whipple in your skull holes. Grow some new peepers. Can't clean the house because you don't have arms or legs? Fuck your appendages. Soak some Whipple on your joint wounds and grow some new shit. Fucking Whipple! New mango, walnut, raspberry, beef, jerky flavors now available. Sorry about that. <laughs> I'm, just now, I'm just now thinking like <laughs> what the neighbors are thinking in this building been a while since I screamed that loud for that long. Uh, I, you know what? I didn't even want to run that ad, to be fair. If anybody gets mad at me, uh, the founder of Whipple uh, pistol whipped me until I agreed to read all that. Okay, let's start off with the broad category uh, to which Cthulhu belongs, the great old ones when talking about his other monsters. Uh, an ongoing theme in Lovecraft's work is the complete irrelevance of mankind in the face of the cosmic horrors that exist in the universe, with Lovecraft constantly referring to the great old ones. A loose pantheon of ancient, powerful deities from space who once ruled the earth and who have since fallen to a death-like sleep. The majority of these have physical forms that the human mind is incapable of processing. Simply viewing, the rend uh, viewing them renders the viewer incurably, can you guess? Yes, insane. Madness again. Uh, dozens of these. Just going to mention a few. Starting off with Kasagtha, Cthulhu's sister and mate. Of course, that big monster is a sister fucker. She's described as literally just being a big pile of tentacles. And in turn gives birth to Nyctosa and Nyctosa, whatever, 
Nikolthulu, these are literally gibberish words, uh, Cthulhu's daughters. Uh, and do not bother with pronunci pronunciation updates for some of these monsters, Lovecraft nerds. Not even Lovecraft knew how to say this shit. Get the fuck out of here. As for Kasagtha uh, herself, her abilities are ill-defined, but she can grab her victims with her tendrils, yank them in to devour them whole. Also noted for being particularly bad-tempered and violent, causing other old ones to tread carefully around her. Love it. Love that other weird, creepy monsters are like, well, fucking, what's Kathaga's problem today? I just asked her how she was doing, and she ate a city. She stared at me and said, you're next. I don't know. Uh, next great old one, the blind idiot god, uh, Azathoth. Basically a sentient singularity, sitting at the very center of the universe. Azathoth lies constantly in a deep slumber, kept there by other powerful deities who have to constantly sing to the creature to keep him in his induced internal hibernation. And it's very important. Keep singing to him. For if Azathoth ever were to awaken, the entire universe would end just like that. All of it gone, right? The moment his fucking eyes open, boom, everything gone. No pressure on those other gods to keep singing. I had a very hard time digging through the uh, mythos to figure out what song Lovecraft said they had to sing. And when I found out what song it was, uh, really not what I was expecting. But now that I know it, you know, uh, of course. I mean, what other song could it actually possibly be? I keep forgetting we're not in love anymore. I keep forgetting things will never be the same again. I keep forgetting how you made that so clear. I keep forgetting every time you It was a Michael motherfucking McDonald. Who else? Who else could soothe the great God but Triple M? Been far too long since I McDonald's you. Hey, oh, Triple M, continue to croon Azathoth to sleep and save the universe. The great deity of time suck, bard of time suck. Uh, next God, Yagolanak, God of pure evil and sadism. Straight up enjoys torturing humans. He gets off on dozens of perversions that can barely be conceived by human imagination and perception. They're so fucked up. His, his acts stretch the limits of human comprehension. Sounds like somebody that uh, Albert Fish, Bob Berdella, truck stop killer, John Wayne Gacy, Charles Ng, Leonard Lake, other torturous serial killing dirtbags we've covered would have uh, enjoyed worshiping. He takes a physical form through possessing human hosts, manifesting as an obese man without a head or a neck. Sweet. With a mouth in the palm of his hands. That sounds horrific. He seeks humans with similar perverse tastes to become his servants, coming to them uh, when they read forbidden literature. So careful what you jerk off to. His true form is sealed behind a wall of bricks deep in ancient ruins beneath the earth. <laughs> I love this guy's fucked up imagination. Uh, Yog sothoth is another incomprehensible being. Uh, defies visualization, although it does appear to humans usually as a mass of glowing orbs or other strange tendrils reaching out from the abyss. There is an agreement between many writers and fans that Yog sothoth is an omniscient being outside of the material realm meaning that it is ultimately a God that knows all. I love it that there's like nerd fights over stuff like this. You know, you can if you find the right chat room, you can just find people going, ha, okay, no, that's not Yogg-Sahoth. Uh, there's no way. There's no, I mean, <laughs> omniscient? Not, not, maybe omnipresent, but fuck, no, get out of here. Um, here's the description of this outer God coming from a Lovecraft fan site. It was an all-in-one and one-in-all of limitless being itself not merely a thing of one space-time continuum, but allied to the ultimate animating essence of existence's whole unbounded sweep, the last utter sweep which has no confines and which outreaches fancy and mathematics alike. 
It was perhaps that which certain secret cults of Earth have worshipped as Yogg-Sathoth, and which has been a deity under other names. That which the crustaceans of Yuggath worship as the Beyond One, in which the vaporous brains of the spiral nebula, known by an untranslatable sign. Uh, two more great old ones. Niar Lethetep, also known as the Crawling Chaos. We talked about the son of a bitch earlier. Neolithotep is an evil god that can shapeshift into over a thousand different forms. The character was found in Lovecraft's poem titled Nearlethotep first. Right, this is the one who influenced Stephen King when he came up with Randall Flagg. Uh, that first poem was published in 1920, part of the original Lovecraftian canon. This being also appeared in a few other stories published throughout the years. Uh, the beast is so scary that the sight of a, a, a basilisk, basilisk, or the, like the sight of a basilisk, basilisk, Jesus Christ, one glance is enough to drive a man insane. When it assumes the form of a human, it turns into an Egyptian pharaoh. Interesting. And last one, referred to as the bearer of the cup of the blood of the ancients, there's Ragog. Ragog is a black leafless oak tree, hot to the touch, and with a single red eye at the center. And what does this giant leafless tree thing do? Well, it's a, it's a bean of darkness. It uh, holds power. What, what, what kind of power? Don't fucking, don't worry about it. Unimaginable. Bad. Now to some other of the non-god creations. Let's talk about the Migo, strange alien types, an extraterrestrial species from the planet Yuggath, implied to be the dwarf planet Pluto, with an appearance like a cross between fungus and lobsters. Okay. Migos are fucking weird. They fly through the vacuum of space, zooming between Earth and Pluto with the aid of their supernatural wings. They worship other Lovecraft gods, act as servants to them, classified as hostile and a rather vicious alien species. Not, not many nice things. In ancient times, they waged a war here on Earth against the elder things, a different alien species, long before humans came into existence. Then there's the humanoid Ghast, not exactly the first monster that people conjure when they think of one of Lovecraft's monsters, which is a shame since Lovecraft gave us a huge collection of awful beasts to choose from. The Ghast have no nose or forehead, but they have a pair of kangaroo legs with hooves which they hop around on and scoop up all the delicious little gugs they can eat. And speaking of gugs, another one of his creatures banished to the underworld for appalling offenses done against the great ones. These giant monsters live in huge towers in their underworld home where they hide from the ghast. Their arms split into multiple forearms with massive talons, talons and razor sharp tooth filled mouths that open vertically. They're fucking terrifying, but they're still ghast food, which speaks to how scary those fuckers are. Right? So if you have your choice between, you know, door number one is going to be a Gug who's going to attack you. Door number two is going to be a Ghast. Yeah, you, you pick Gug. Four more, starting with Shoggoths. The Shoggoths were created by the Elder Things as a slave race, taking the form of grotesque blobs covered in dozens of eyes. They have tremendous strength and are nearly invincible against forms of physical attack. Eventually, they developed a consciousness of their own and rebelled against the Elder Things, resulting in them roaming the dark spaces of the world in the modern day. Creators of the monstrous Shoggoth Wraith, the Elder Things, aren't actually all that evil, not compared with other monsters in the Lovecraftian universe, despite the fact that just laying eyes upon their starfish plant hybrid alien forms will drive the viewer to madness. So much madness! Lovecraft was mostly about madness. Talking about these monsters, I just can't stop thinking about Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering, Stranger Things. Uh, just like the Migo, the Elder Things are actually aliens who built colossal cities and societies that predated all human civilizations. The Elder Things had a history of chaos and war between the Migo and the great race of Yith. Another great race of aliens. Uh, the great race of it, Yith. A foe that battles with the Migo and the Shoggoths. The planet Yith, set to be destroyed billions of years ago, but the inhabitants use their psychic powers 
to install their consciousnesses into the hardiest race of creatures they could find. So the great race of Yith became four-armed, conical earth-bound creatures. One set of arms had claws. The other set had horns. Sounds pretty impractical to walk around on. Then their head had eyes, ears, and uh, tentacles. Everyone has tentacles. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And where are these bastards today? Well, they're, they're not around. Uh, they only exist in the past. They're kind of around. They're not in the present, but they do exist in the past and in the future. Check this out. Because this great race can travel through time. They foresaw their own destruction by the flying polyps. Fucking polyps. Yet another group of weird, destructive, fucked up aliens. And before the fateful day of their demise, the Yith transferred their best brains, consciousnesses, whatever, through time into the bodies of beetle folk. The Coleopterus Cali race. Earth's dominant species in the future after mankind is destroyed uh, some, sometime between 8 and 50 million CE. So, so we got some time. Before becoming beetle folk, the Yith collective minds, uh, they, they chilled out on Mercury for a while as a vegetable species. Nice. <laughs> now for the Wasidenax. Keeps getting weirder. The Wasidenax were, were like a strange cross between frogs, leopards, salmon, and small tanks. A race of cyborgs from Gutalistuk. They have mechanically enhanced bodies uh, shaped like atoms. They secreted a substance similar to custard. It made a meep-tweet kind of sound. Meep-tweet that signaled telepathic thoughts of terror. Their tongues came out of their eyes, and their eyes were where tongue should be, making them vulnerable to attack while eating because that's when they were kind of blind. And that's the only time you could hope to kill one before it killed you. And their primary function in the Cthulhu mythos was to suck Lovecraft's dick. You heard me. That's probably why he wasn't terribly interested in Earth women. He had a cosmic hard-on for the Wasidenax. The vaginas were made of metal, shaped like an inverted donut crossed with a parallelogram. They had seven breasts made out of the smell of poppy seed muffins, shaped like aluminum that tastes like teal. Can you picture all that? No, of course not. They're too much for your feeble human mind to comprehend, idiot. Think not of the side next, for you will go mad. And also, it is very much a waste of time to think about them, because I made that one up. And I wonder how many Lovecraft superfans just acted like they knew what I was fucking talking about. Because they didn't want to be outside, you know, the Cool Kids Club. You know, before I got to the blowjob part, they were like, oh, yeah, fucking Osidenax. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> those are one of my favorites, actually. Because I, I know, yeah, I know everything Lovecraft. Uh, yeah, Gutala Stuk. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where I thought That's where I thought they were from. Uh, last one comes from the first story Lovecraft had published in Weird Tales, Dagon. Father Dagon, as he's called by his worshipers, is a deity who rules over the Deep Ones, an ocean-dwelling race of fish people who like to fuck humans. Not kidding this time. They find us super hot. Cultists can entice him to the surface through ritualistic orgies. Hail Lucifina, I, I think. Maybe not. Father Dagon is a gigantic sea creature that dwells in the seas, worshipped by a devout cult of humans and deep ones. Dagon only appears physically in the short story named after him, where he erupts from the ocean to embrace an unholy monolith. His existence, though, casts a long shadow over other stories, even though you don't see him. There are just, uh, these are just some of the creatures that populate the universe Lovecraft created that inspired many of his contemporaries to build on, uh, you know, onto towards the end of his life and after his death. A universe author still sets stories in today. A universe that continues to inspire the imaginations of those drawn towards Lovecraft's cosmic horror. Now to once more showcase the strange world these creatures lived in, let us dig into one last story. Into arguably his most famous story outside of the call of Cthulhu, at the Mountains of Madness. Won't do all of it. Uh, it was written in February, March, 1931, rejected that year by Weird Tales editor Farnsworth Wright. Farnsworth Wright, that's a 1931 name, on the grounds of its length. You don't mean a lot of Farnsworths today. <laughs> Apologies to all of my Farnsworth listeners. 
Uh, it was originally serialized in the February, March, and April 1936 issues of, a, of another pulp magazine, Astounding Stories. Astounding Stories, yeah. And it's been reproduced in numerous collections since. In this tale, on September 2nd, 1930, the Pobody Expedition from Miskatonic University in Arkham sets off for Antarctica. Small advanced group led by Professor Lake discovers the remains of 14 prehistoric life forms previously unknown to science and also unidentifiable as either plants or animals. Six of the specimens have been badly damaged, while another eight have been preserved preserved in pristine condition. The specimen's stratum places them far too early on the ge geologic time scale for the features of the specimens to have evolved to where they are. When the main expedition loses contact with Lake's party, a geologist named Dyer and his colleagues investigate. Lake's camp is devastated, with the majority of men and dogs slaughtered, while a man named Gedney and one of the dogs are absent. Near the expedition's campsite, they find a star, a, they find six star-shaped snow mounds with one specimen, specimen under each. They also discover that the better preserved life forms have vanished, and that some form of dissection experiment has been done on both an unnamed man and a dog. The missing man is suspected of having gone utterly insane and having killed and mutilated all the others. More insanity. Dyer and a graduate student named Danforth fly an airplane across the mountains, which they identify as the outer walls of a vast abandoned stone city, alien to any type of human architecture. For their resemblance to creatures of myth mentioned in the Necronomicon, the builders of this lost civilization are dubbed the Elder Things. By exploring these fantastic structures, the men learn through hieroglyphic murals that the Elder Things first came to Earth shortly after the moon took form and built their cities with the help of Shoggoths, those biological entities. Uh, we spoke of earlier, created to perform any task, assume any form, and reflect any thought. There's a hint that all earthly life from cellular material left, uh, that all human, all earthly life evolved from cellular material left over from the creation of the Shoggoth. So we are all part Shoggoth. Team Meatsack is Team Shoggoth. As more buildings are explored, the explorers learn about the Elder Things conflict with both the star spawn of Cthulhu and the Migo, who arrived on Earth shortly afterwards. The murals also allude to an unnamed evil lurking within an even larger mountain range located beyond the old city. This mountain range rose in one night and certain phenomena and incidents deterred the Elder Things from ever exploring it. What scared the Elder Things? When Antarctica became in uninhabitable, even for the Elder Things, they soon migrated into a large subterranean ocean. As one does, Dyer and Danforth eventually realized that the Elder Things missing from the advance party's camp had somehow returned to life, and after slaughtering the explorers, had, have returned to their city. They are ultimately drawn towards the entrance of a tunnel into the subterranean region depicted in the murals. Here they find evidence of various elder things killed in a brutal struggle, and blind, six-foot-tall penguins wandering placidly around, apparently used as livestock. Penguin cows! Those evil creatures fed on some of our cutest, not even real animals. Of course they do. Probably some kitten puppy cows, uh, you know, there too, if you looked hard enough. Uh, the men are then confronted by a black bubbling mass, which they identify as a Shoggoth. Oh, Shoggoth in black bubble form. And they escape. Aboard the plane high above the plateau, Danforth looks back and sees something which causes him to lose his own sanity. Dyer concludes the Elder Things are survivors of a bygone era who slaughtered Lake's group in either self-defense or scientific curiosity. Their civilization was eventually destroyed by the Shoggoths, which now prey on the enormous pe penguin cow things, he warns the planners of the next proposed Antarctic expedition to stay away from this cursed site. And here's a cool passage from this story. This is Dyer recalling his and Danforth's escape from the ancient and evil Antarctic city as best his feeble human mind can. Danforth and I have recollections of emerging into the great sculptured hemisphere 
and of threading our back trail through the Cyclopean rooms and corridors of the dead city. Yet these are purely dream fragments involving no memory of volition, details, or physical exertion. It was as if we floated in a nebulous world or dimension without time, causation, or orientation. The gray half-daylight of the vast circular space sobered us somewhat, but we did not go near those cached sledges or look again at poor Gedley and the dog. They have a strange and titanic mausoleum, and I hope the end of this planet will find them still undisturbed. It was while struggling up the colossal spiral incline that we first felt the terrible fatigue and short breath which our race through the thin plateau air had produced, but not even the fear of collapse could make us pause before reaching the normal outer realm of sun and sky. There was something vaguely appropriate about our departure from these buried epics. For as we wound our panting way up the 60-foot cylinder of primal masonry, we glimpsed behind us a continuous procession of heroic sculptures in the dead race's early and undecayed technique, a farewell from the old ones, written 50 million years ago. Finally scrambling out at the top, we found ourselves on a great mound of tumbled blocks with the curved walls of higher stonework rising westward and the brooding peaks of the great mountains shooing beyond the more crumbled structures toward the east. The low Antarctic sun of midnight peered redly from the southern horizon through rifts in the jagged ruins, and the terrible age and deadness of the nightmare city seemed all the starker by contrast with such relatively known and accustomed things as the features of the polar landscape. The sky above was a churning and opalescent mass of tenuous ice vapors, and the cold clutched at our vitals. Wearily resting the outfit bags to which we had instinctively clung throughout our desperate flight, we rebuttoned our heavy garments for the stumbling climb down the mound and walked through the eon-old stone maze to the foothills where our aeroplane waited. Of what had set us fleeing from the darkness of Earth's secret and archaic gulfs, we said nothing at all. In less than a quarter of an hour, we had found the steep grade to the foothills, the probable ancient terrace by which we had descended and could see the dark bulk of our great plain amidst the sparse ruins of the rising slope ahead. Halfway uphill toward our goal, we paused for a momentary breathing spell and turned to look again at the fantastic Paleogean tangle of incredible stone shapes below us, once more outlined mystically against an unknown west. As we did so, we saw the sky beyond had lost its morning haziness, the restless ice vapors having moved up to the zenith, where their mocking outlines seemed on the point of settling into some bizarre pattern which they feared to make quite definite or conclusive. There now lay, revealed on the ultimate white horizon behind the grotesque city, a dim elfin line of pinnacled violet whose needle-pointed heights loomed dreamlike against the beckoning rose color of the western sky. Up toward this shimmering rim sloped the ancient tableland, the depressed course of the bygone river traversing it as irregular ribbon of shadow. For a second we gasped in admiration of the scene's unearthly cosmic beauty, and then vague horror began to creep into our souls. For this far violet line could be nothing else than the terrible mountains of the Forbidden Land, highest of Earth's peaks and focus of Earth's evil, harborers of nameless horrors and archaean secrets, shunned and prayed to by those who feared to carve their meaning, untrodden by any living thing of Earth, but visited by the sinister lightings and sending strange beams across the plains and the polar light beyond doubt the unknown archetype of that dreaded Cadith in the cold waste, beyond abhorrent Leng, whereof unholy primal legends hint evasively. We were the first humans to ever see them, and I hope to God we may be 
the last. More madness. More hints of cosmic horror. Too terrible to properly describe. And I fucking nailed those pronunciations in that one. I couldn't do that again. Save my life. <laughs> that was a miracle. I think Lovecraft is great at turning on your imagination because he doesn't spell out all the details, right? Like I said earlier, he lets you fill in the holes you see fit. He provides that backdrop of tension, despair, anxiety, the dark mood of impending doom. He makes it clear that horror awaits unimaginable, powerful, evil horrors. But he stops short of spelling out exactly what those horrors are. He just gives us a vague shape to the monsters, knowing the reader will want more be forced to come up with the rest of the details on their own, thus tailoring the story to the darkest imaginings of our own minds. Well played, Lovecraft, well played. Kadath, by the way, is some unknown and horrible ancient city in his universe, uh, laying as a cold, arid plateau on which that city may sit. In the uh, post, oh boy, that word, I fucking hate it so much. In the post, post, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not even going to try and say it today. In a story published after he died, uh, The Dream Quest of Unknown Caddis, uh, both of these places are mentioned. It's not, I think it's post, post, I fucking hate that word. I've, I've looked up the pronunciation guide a thousand times, but then I won't say it <laughs> for a while. And every time I encountered, I'm like, God, what? Uh, anyway. It's not clear if these uh, places exist only in dreams or in the real quote-unquote Lovecraftian universe. Okay, so that's all the nerd fiction stuff, which I love. I say nerd in, the, in a good way. Now time to address some controversies regarding real-life Lovecraft. I referenced earlier before wrapping this baby up. Uh, Lovecraft was, not surprisingly, a uh, bit of a lunatic. He was a crazy Anglophile, a person who loves all things British. He felt that the world's best writers were British. The world's best culture was British. He supported the British monarchy in his lifetime. He actually opposed democracy, thought America should be governed by an aristocracy, a British aristocracy. He probably only jerked off to erotic thoughts of British women. He proudly proclaimed that his bloodlines had not been tainted by anyone but the British. He was almost correct. He had a tiny bit of Irish, tiny bit of Welsh in the family tree. He was close. He was so into being British that his pride turned into racism. He thought anyone and everyone who were not of British descent were inferior to various degrees. That's what the guy who spent the majority of his life living with mommy and or his aunts thought, that he was superior. Uh, even though he married a Jewish woman, he was actually incredibly racist, even by the standards of his own era. Lovecraft's bigotry is most evident in his voluminous correspondence. He wrote somewhere between 10,000 and 100,000 letters in his lifetime. So many fucking letters. Numerous letters a day. And in his letters, he candidly expressed contempt for Jews, black people, non-white immigrants, voiced an overwhelming fear of uh, miscegenation or marriage between races. He praised Southerners for, quote, resorting to extra-legal measures such as lynching, such as lynching in their efforts to keep the races separate, writing, anything is better than the mongrelization, which would mean the hopeless deterioration of a great nation. So yeah, fucking eek, cringy. 1912, he actually wrote a poem called On the Creation of N-Word, which imagines black people as beasts wrought by the gods in semi-human figure filled with vice. Dude was so racist. Uh, he had a cat named N-Word, man. That cat ran away when he was 14. So actually, his family had that cat. He was raised in a super racist household. His family never approved of his marriage to Sonia Green because she was Jewish. So why was he so racist? Well, part of it was the time he lived in. A lot of people were very racist to some degree in the early 20th century. Uh, also, clearly his upbringing had a lot to do with it. When your family's okay with the name of your cat being what it was, when you're raised in a way that is almost undoubtedly, uh, you know, when you're raised in that way, it's almost undoubtedly going to turn you into somebody who's aggressively racist, especially when you don't have a lot of outside influences. They were so clannish and uh, borderline agoraphobic. They had their little echo chamber in their home there. And then there's all the mental illness. You know, his mom, super anxious, fearful person. 
afraid of the world around her. Uh, he was afraid of the world around him, of people different than him, filled with fear all the time, fear that also made his fiction great. Uh, he was a weird recluse for almost his entire life, holed up in a home. You know, just most of his friendships were based on letters. He was holed up physically in a home with family who were super racist. So should we sick cancel culture on Lovecraft now in some revisionist way? Uh, why? What good would that do? I think we address it, talk about it, and then we move on. Dude's long dead. He's not going to fucking care if we scrap his words now or not. Like, what is it proof? Uh, racist or not, he wrote a lot of great shit. You know, being racist doesn't mean you can't also be a great author. That's not how shit works. Uh, he wrote a lot of things that people of all races have since enjoyed. And think about this, uh, especially woke listeners, probably cringing right now if you haven't turned this off. Uh, currently, a black man and executive producer, Jordan Peele, I referenced earlier, is making far more money off of Lovecraft via the show Lovecraft Country on HBO than Lovecraft ever made himself. Lovecraft Country, a series about a young black man, Atticus Finch, who travels across the segregated 1950s in the U.S. in search of his missing father. Learning of dark secrets plaguing a town on which famous horror writer, you know, Lovecraft supposedly based the location of many of his fictional tales in. Canceling Lovecraft now would be A, illogical, and B, it would take a lot of work away from a talented cast full of black actors. And, and a lot of uh, behind the scenes, you know, with writers and producers that are also people of color. You know, there's Jonathan Majors who plays Atticus Finch. Uh, actors of numerous other non-white races play a lot of the other characters. All these actors making more in life now than Lovecraft ever did. The show is helping support, uh, you know, a lot of non-white, non-British families advance. Uh, you know, it's taking a lot of non-white, non-British careers further. So in a way, Lovecraft's already being punished. And, and he lived a pretty punishing life. I mean, you heard me talk about it. Dude never did basically anything but struggle and then died a painful and young death. What more punishment do you want? Uh, I also like to think that if he were re revived somehow and could meet the cast of this show today, he would see the error of his early 20th century ways. And if he didn't, well, you know what? Then he'd be a racist son of a bitch who still wrote some great cosmic horror a long time ago. Uh, I like to try to separate art from the artist as much as possible. It's hard enough to find artists I really like if I have to also approve of all of their personal stances to enjoy what they create, well, then fuck. I'm going to be left with almost no one. So let's recap. H.P. Uh, Lovecraft has been sucked, born in Providence. Lovecraft st struggled to make ends meet almost his entire life. Uh, was, was not conventionally successful. He dabbled in publishing, never paid the bills. But that would not stop him from basically, you know, uh, inventing a new subgenre of horror. Lovecraft's major inspiration and invention was cosmic horror, the premise of which is that the true workings of the universe are beyond human comprehension and that humanity's place in the cosmos is terrifyingly insignificant. A uh, key feature of many of his stories is the existence of powerful extraterrestrial or supernatural entities that influence or threaten the human world in subtle ways and whose mere perception by human observers often drives the latter to madness. Cthulhu is one of the great old ones, a group of powerful beings from another place that now inhabit Earth, waiting to rise up when the stars are right and destroy the human race so they can rule the planet. The story that would put Cthulhu on the map was the 1928 short story, The Call of Cthulhu. In it, it is said that Cthulhu currently lies in a dreamlike state in the underwater sunken city of Relay. It's like R apostrophe L-Y-E-A or E-H. Waiting for the time when the old one shall rise again. It would be this story and many others that would be the seeds of the, the seeds of the Cthulhu uh, mythos, an expansive fictional world that many people have contributed to. And although Lovecraft's readership was limited during his life, his reputation has grown over the decades, and he is now commonly regarded as one of the most influential horror authors of the 20th century. Lovecraft's stories have had a profound impact on popular culture, from movies to television to books, from Neil Gaiman, Stephen King, Stranger Things, X Files, and more. Even heavy metal bands, video games have been inspired by H.P. Lovecraft. 
Weird British hard on having reclusive, super racist or not, hard to imagine the world of horror without him. Now let's head on over to to today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, H.P. Lovecraft was a master of horror. He understood deeply that terrifying monsters were terrifying not only because they represented a physical threat to us, but because they could make us doubt our own sense of reality. Number two, Cthulhu is a scary as fuck ancient being trapped beneath the earth. It's basically a giant clusterfuck of tentacles and other animal features. He's also the source of all human anxiety. Just seeing him will drive you insane. And he is the uh, object of a bunch of cults. Cult, cult, cult. Object of a bunch of cult worship. Uh, number three, H.P. Lovecraft's influence on horror, hard to understate. He's influenced so many authors, filmmakers, and others. He basically invented, again, cosmic horror, plays on people's fear of the unknown as it relates to space and whether or not something much more powerful lurks somewhere out there. A theme that has been explored in countless pieces of media since. Number four, the Cthulhu mythos truly is one of the most expansive pieces of lore ever created, written by a number of science fiction and horror writers. You too can contribute to the Cthulhu mythos unless you're afraid of what knowledge you might discover. Number five, new info. Cthulhu has also entered the world of politics. The monster has appeared as a parody candidate in several elections around the world, including the 2010 Polish presidential election. Love it. (laughs) I would love it if uh, Cthulhu became president of Poland. And the 2012 and 2016 uh, U.S. presidential elections. The faux campaigns usually satirize voters. Voters who claimed to vote for the lesser evil of Cthulhu. In 2016, the troll account known as the Dark Lord Cthulhu submitted an official application to be on the Massachusetts presidential ballot. The account raised over $4,000 from fans to fund the campaign through a GoFundMe page. GoFundMe removed the campaign, uh, refunded contributions. Come on, GoFund. Have a sense of humor. Uh, The Cthulhu Party in the UK, another pseudo-political organization, claimed to be changing politics for evil when they parodied the Brexit Party's changing politics for good slogan. Another organization, Cthulhu for America, ran during the 2016 American presidential election. Uh, Of course, did not win. (laughs) Here's why some uh, uh, members of this organization thought Cthulhu would be a good president. Cthulhu has destroyed no less than 50 sapient species in this galaxy alone. He'll remove big money in politics by removing all masters of the universe from existence. Experts say Cthulhu's plan to eat Wall Street accountants is the toughest and most bloody of all presidential candidates. Who needs to build a wall when consuming the planet in endless madness is just as effective? If not Cthulhu, then who? Nearlethotep? Shoggoth? Please. Cthulhu would not institute a theocracy in America as a real god. Cthulhu would have no need to force people to believe in it. After you are eaten, your effective tax rate will be zero. Because the nihilism of cosmic terror is preferable to the nihilism of the two-party system. That's my favorite. Uh, And then last, uh, it's willing to do what no other candidate will. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Cthulhu and Lovecraft have been sucked. Uh, I I hope I did that justice. I I feel, you know, for what I'm able to do in a week, I feel pretty good about that one. Of course, I was going to fuck up some words. It's it's a ridiculous word salad of an episode. (laughs) And I know that some of the words I messed up were words that had nothing to do with Lovecraft. But uh, I found this one really fascinating and truly uh, inspiring in an imaginative sense. It's, uh, I didn't realize how much of what he wrote about influenced so many other creators that influenced my imagination so much. So that was, uh, that was some cool history, at least for me to learn. So thanks, nerds, for nerding that one out and voting it up. Uh, thanks to the Bad Magic Productions team for all the help in making Time Suck. Queen of Bad Magic, 
Lindsay Cummins, Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley for audio engineering, scriptkeeper Zach Flannery, uh, Sophie Factsource with Evans. She ran point on research on this one. Bit Elixir, Liz Hernandez, Beefsteak, and Logan the Art Warlock, Keith. Uh, also, quick congrats to our first three-time Time Suck Trivia champ, Bodhi210. One round 11 with 7,476 points. A monster at trivia. And now in the 12th round, he may get to, uh, you know, top of the point total for the entire first year of trivia and become the first annual Knowledge of Nimrod Super Supreme Grand Champion of the world. Best of luck to all competing for that. Next week on Time Suck, we delve back into the realm of true crime with notorious English serial killers Fred and Rose West. Holy shit. I, I've been uh, deep in research with that topic as well. Yee! Frederick Walter, Fred West, Rosemary, Pauline Rose West uh, were an English married duo of serial killers and serial rapists who killed at least a dozen young British girls, including several of their own daughters. They're full on evil. Such a crazy story. Both of these people had uh, horrific childhoods. Steph Cox Kirby, fodder worthy childhoods. By Fred's own account, sexual abuse of various kinds was common and made to be presented as normal in his, his house. He claimed his dad had sexual relationships with his daughters, you know, which have been Fred's sisters. Fred also had sexual relationships with his sisters, said his dad taught him about bestiality. Rose, meanwhile, was the daughter of Bill Letts, a schizophrenic who constantly sexually abused her, her siblings, and her mom, Daisy. Then Fred and Rose meet in 1968 and bond in the worst of ways and create a new terrible normal in their household. Their future home would be a terrifying one for both their children and their victims, nicknamed the House of Horrors by the British press. So much sex. Uh, so much abuse, they beat and molested their kids, lived in a house that was more of a sex den for Rose's prostitution clients and other people that came to their orgies and fucking swinger parties they hosted and all kinds of shit than a real home. Uh, they're picking up young women, taking them back to their house for sex, uh, murdering some in their cellar fuck dungeon. It's an insane story that we're telling next week on Time Suck. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker updates. Let us start off with an awesome update to a recent update. Remember Cummins Law victim and barbecue master, Jacob Lubbers? Uh, we talked about him maybe losing out on a bunch of tasty sauce sales to, to schnucks, to schnucks grocers. Thanks to an ill-timed Bluetooth situation, well, things are turning around thanks to the Time Suck community. Jacob writes, Sir Dan, thank you so much for reading my story on the pod, proving once again the Cult of the Curious is the best squad on the planet. I was flooded with online orders, love it, for full bore barbecue. I also received many emails of support from the listeners and even was contacted by four different friends from my high school I hadn't spoken to in some time. I did not know were time suckers. I likewise found the awesome spinoff page, Cooks of the Curious on Facebook, and have been chatting it up with folks on there. No word yet from schnucks, but there is hope. Thank you from Full Bore Barbecue to everyone who reached out and supported and suck on. That's Jacob Lovers. And you can check it out, uh, fullborebbqproducts.com. You want to get yourself some sweet, sweet sauce. Uh, yeah, Jacob, love this. Uh, praise Bojangles. It's fantastic that you were flooded with orders. I hope you're flooded with more. Thrive, full bore barbecue, thrive. I hope you're stuck in the kitchen until the wee hours of the night making more sweet sauce. Now I'm hungry. Happy for you, dude. Uh, super sucker Blake McCall did not get Cummins lawed, but the recent Carl Denke suck did fuck up his day a bit. Uh, here's Blake. Hey, suck master, how's it going? My name is Blake McCall. I've been listening to you at least two years now, and I wanted to write in and tell you how fucked this is. Well, listen to Carl Denke suck. You mentioned grilled ass cheeks when describing Denke's apartment and what police found inside. When describing it, it was around lunchtime for me at the manufacturing plant I work at. And when describing the apartment, I began to smell the food from the kitchen that was being prepared. LMAO. On top of that, the daily special was pork tenderloin. 
And you started talking about how pork sales dropped in the area Denki was from. This made my decision to skip lunch as all I could think about was a large man with a beer, uh, with a beer uh, grilling ass cheeks on like a Weber grill. Standing out front, uh, people walking by, sniffing the air like when your neighbor's, uh, when your neighbor barbecues, LOL. Then he nods like, oh yeah, smells good, right? Thanks for the unforgettable laughs, you awesome sucker. Thanks for doing what you do. You make learning so much better. Hailable Jangles, praise for Blem. I tip my hat to Lucifina. Your forever listener, Blake M. Thank you, Blake. Man, you picked the wrong day to listen to Denki. I hope you can enjoy pork again now. Uh, thanks for the kind words. I'm glad uh, we can share some info with you. I learned so much each week as well. It's so fun. I love it. Anyways, uh, uh, wish I could remember more, uh, you know, always with the episodes. But I guess, you know, remembering some of this knowledge we go over is, is better than none. Hail Nimrod, my friend. Uh, recently single and hopeful sucker. Now, Josh Treon wants to thank some of you. He writes, hello, Suckmaster. I'm a regular for both Scared to Death and Time Suck. Probably going to end up adding to that soon. I've loved Time Suck since the moment I found it. My first suck was the Operation Paperclip, three out of five suck. And I've always just jumped around between work and married life. Became an official spacer a couple months ago, got some sweet merch. Between then and now, my wife asked me for a dissolution of marriage. I was absolutely distraught and binged the suck so hard. And I got to say, your sweet, sweet voice got me through some dark moments. I even posted, posted the Cult of the Curious 2 page because I wanted to be respectful of timing when I started to date again, you know, asking for advice. And I just got to say, gosh, dang, everyone's helpful. I was at a weird spot when I posted it, but the group really got me out of a funk by the end of it all. I just wanted to contact you and say, thank you for building such an amazing content machine. And on top of that, a community that absolutely kicks ass. Sorry for the long message. Hail Nimrod. Praise Bojangles. Glory be to Triple M. Again, thank you, Suckmaster. Couldn't be, I couldn't imagine a better person to suck with. Josh Freon. Well, thank you, Josh. Uh, so glad you're doing so much better. Glad some cult members have been helping out. That shit always makes my heart feel so good. I love seeing all the support. Uh, life is often such a, a dark motherfucker uh, and some kindness delivered at the right time can truly save lives. It just goes such a long ways. We don't need Cthulhu to scare us, right? Divorce, death, disease, despair. We got, we got enough words to start with D uh, to fill our days with more than enough fear. Thank God we also have plenty of C words like care, compassion, and kindness. I know the last one starts with a K, but it sounds like a C. May Lucifina bless your romantic endeavors, Josh. Now, smart sack Jason Miller has an update regarding a fear I shared in the Mao Zedong episode. Let's get smarter. He writes, Dan, I'm Jason Miller. After listening to your Chairman Mao podcast, you mentioned that you were worried about the Chinese holding so much of our bonds. I want to know why you feel that way. I've heard folks say that they fear China calling the debt due and for bonds, this is impossible. If this is your stance, you have bad information. How bonds work is that the issuer, USA, has a deficit to meet its needs and issues bonds to generate cash to meet its need. The issuer issues the bonds with the following items, FV, the face value, the amount you buy the bond, typically $1,000, uh, and the term, the length of time the issuer will hold the funds, I slash Y, the interest, the percent amount of the face value paid to the holder at set intervals as payments, generally twice a year, FV times Y or I slash Y equals PMT divided by two. All right. Uh, the holder China pays the face value, waits for the term to be met, receives interest payments for the bonds then the face value back. For simplicity's sake, thank you. We will not get into discounts and premiums for the issuing of bonds and assume everyone buys at the par value and nor how the bond market moves inverse to the interest rate. The important thing to remember is that the further out a bond is from the maturity date, the less it is worth. In the finance field, we have two formulas, yield to maturity and yield to date to figure out the value of the bonds. With China holding that much debt, they have no reason to act against the debt issuer, the USA, which could trigger a bond default. The only thing that China can do is sell their existing stockpile of bonds at a discount. The nuclear option of selling the debt means nothing. 
Be afraid of the time when China stops buying bonds due to the USA being addicted to the Chinese cash to pay for its overspending. 2020 revenue, 3.4 trillion. That's the income. 2020 budget, 6.5 trillion. 2020 deficit, 3.1 trillion. Uh, Yeek. Uh, and you, and you give it a bunch of, uh, sources for extra reading. Jason, thank you for sharing this information. Yeah, I guess that particular fear I, I have is unfounded. Uh, I did fall thanks to some economic ignorance on my part into the, well, when China calls in his debt, we're going to be fucked. Uh, I fell into that camp. What you wrote makes sense. Uh, the possibility of China refusing to continue to, you know, uh, kind of fund our debt is terrifying. Uh, the way those bonds work, it's, it's, yeah, it's in China's economic interest for the U.S. to thrive and always be able to pay our debts back, right? Uh, and that way, they should root for us to prosper. Uh, also, thanks for the sources you left to further, uh, you know, uh, dig into this. I'm going to I'm gonna leave those in the show notes so that other uh, listeners can find them if they choose. You just go in the TimeSuck app, you know, download the show notes under the episode description. There's a little, you can just click around. I don't have it written in front of me, but it's, it's not that hard to figure out. And, uh, and then you can link to these other sources. And I linked a little bit. I uh, learned that Japan owns about as much of our debt as China does in the form of these bonds. I did not know that. I was worried that the Chinese government owns too much of our land. Uh, I was also worried about that. And I do worry about foreign land investment and learn through bouncing around, thanks to your sources, that foreign investors, much of them corporations, do own at least 28.3 million acres of just farmland in the U.S., valued at $52.2 billion, about the size of the state of Ohio as of 2019. Uh, China specifically in 2019 owned 191,000 acres of farmland in the U.S., worth almost $2 billion. That scares me at first glance. But I guess if these investors tried to use that land as some kind of, you know, club to beat down America with, the government could take it back or, you know, do something else. Something with consequences, of course, but still. I, I just wish we had the ability to become more independent. And, and I think that no matter what country I lived in, right? It, it, it is scary in moments to think about how interconnected the world is and how the economy of one country is tied to the economy of so many others. And yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll at least worry less about foreign debt now, thanks to your message. Uh, now, one last message. Some cool extra seven wonders knowledge from another smart and caring sucker, Amanda Winter. And also a reminder to be tolerant. Amanda writes, hello, suck master, flex and team. I'm writing about the ancient wonder suck and the pyramids at Giza. I graduated three weeks ago with a master's degree in astrophysics. Holy shit, congrats. And every Friday night, I give lectures and star tours at my local planetarium. I always include the pyramids in my programming. You mentioned uh, that some people believe they pointed to the stars on Orion's belt. Well, that's a common misconception. The pyramids do line up with the trio of stars in the Draco constellation, the main star being Thuban. We all know that Earth spins, but most people don't know that the Earth also wobbles like a top. However, due to the size of the Earth and space itself, this wobble takes tens of thousands of years. Back when the pyramids were being built, Thuban was actually the pole star acting as Polaris, or as the North Star does today. And in approximately 10 to 20,000 years from now, our current North, North Star, Polaris, will no longer be the pole star as the Earth continues its wobble. Just a fun fact I thought you might enjoy hearing. Keep up the excellent work. Amanda Winter. P.S. As you know, June is Pride Month. LGBT plus youth as especially, and especially trans youth have an exponentially higher rate of suicide than their cis straight peers. I volunteer for an organization called Free Mom Hugs. We work with LGBT plus meat sacks of all ages who've been rejected by their parents. Sometimes it's as simple as a hug. Sometimes we even take in youths who have been kicked out of their homes or assaulted by their own families. It would mean a lot if you would give a few words of encouragement to your LGBT plus listeners and let them know they are loved and supported exactly as they are. Amanda. First off, what a fucking great organization. Yes. 
LGBT plus listeners should be reminded there are plenty of people who love you just as you are and don't care what legal consenting holes you want filled uh, or to fucking by whom. All right, it's so silly to worry over shit like that. God, God doesn't care. I feel like a lot of it comes from, you know, people's, uh, I feel like misdirected religious notions. Uh, direct anyone who thinks God cares about that stuff to me. Have them send me some scripture to back up their arguments and I will send back more scripture to prove to them that they are wrong about their own belief system. Uh, you know, uh, good members uh, of religions should not care about shit like that and don't. There's plenty who don't now. Uh, don't worry about people saying that they're praying for you. You pray for them. Nimrod assures me that he and Lucifina love the shit out of you. Triple M has hugs for all as well. Yeah, uh, very loved here in the Timeside community, the LGBT plus community. There are so many, so many, so many, so many more important things to worry about than what somebody's sexual preference is. Like, why does it fucking matter? Uh, that kills you when somebody like, especially a parent, how fucked up. Good for you to, with this group, uh, you know, Amanda, to be part of this group that just gives, you know, people hugs who aren't getting from their own families. Like somebody's not going to hug their son or daughter because they're gay or trans or whatever. Fuck you. What a fucking asshole you are. Like, seriously, that's what you're going to take to your grave? That kind of just silly hate? What the fuck is wrong with you? When I was younger, I used to have a bunch of stupid thoughts that way, and I'm so glad I lived long enough to get past them. I would have died an ignorant fuck. I'll die a less ignorant fuck, hopefully now. But yeah, there's just, you know, life is short. You know, be angry <laughs> for shit that deserves anger, and it's not that. And be loving when you can. Thanks for all the cool star info as well, Smarty Pants. Uh, so many big brains and even bigger hearts in the cult. And I love it. Hail Nimrod to you all. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sex. Uh, don't name your pets anything super racist this week. Uh, you know, throw out some hugs. You know, focus mostly on writing cool stories, maybe. And continuing to keep on sucking. It is I, the Wasidenach, the creature from uh, the place Gutolastuk. I Now sometimes I have a devil head for a hand and a drill, or maybe I don't. It appears that way, doesn't it? You know why you see me this way and not in my real form? Because you're stupid. You're fucking stupid. If you want to get smarter, drink Whipple. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement. While another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.